Hello, and welcome to the Not-A-Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. Well, normally one chapter this week, we do I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 16th episode of the Not-A-Cast entitled, The Way Things Are in Songs, an analysis of Editor 3, of Game of Thrones, Editor 3, in wait which... Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jeff, that was that was a very nice try, sir. But I think you're forgetting the other POV character we're talking about today. Your favorite Stark of all. I don't know if I can I can get away with it with you, but no, I guess I can get I can't get anything past you. True. Fine, fine, fine. True. Okay, fine. Welcome to our 16th episode of the Nauticast entitled "The Way Things Are in Songs: An Analysis of a Game, An Analysis of a Game of Thrones, Sansa One." And an analysis of a Game of Thrones, Eddard 3, in which Sansa Stark's fairy tale dreams get rudely interrupted by harsh realities for the first, but not the last time. And then Lord Eddard Stark fights for what's right and then loses, but not for the last time either. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander. They are Mark N., Timothy W., and Hayden J. Thank you all very much for your kind patronage and support. Yes, indeed, sirs. And as we say in every episode, our spoiler warning, it is for all published books. That is the five novels, the three Dunkin' Egg novellas, histories, interviews, and the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So we have not been around for a few weeks, and we appreciate everyone's patience as I was away for a little while. But we are back now. We're going to be steaming through the rest of a Game of Thrones. And because we haven't been around for a while, we have a bunch of questions that have piled up. We are only going to get to two of the questions today. And just as a reminder for those of you who are listening and who might be interested, we have a Patreon. And for those who contribute $10 or more a month, that is our Sworn Swords, our Kingsguard, and our Lord's Commander, you have the opportunity to ask us a question that we will answer on air and you get to hear your name or your assumed name if you have one, which we encourage strongly to have cool, interesting names. You get to ask us questions and we will answer them on this podcast. So we have two questions this week. The first one is a little bit shorter and the long one, and the next one is a bit longer, but it's great. So the first question comes from Lady Bree Bang, who asks, which character have you changed your mind on the most significantly? Emmett. That's a good question. Um, I might say Bran on the whole, not in terms of whether I like his character. I've always loved his character and loved all of his chapters, uh, more in terms of his trajectory. I used to be pretty bullish on him staying in the cave beyond the wall, but now I lean much more towards him coming home to Winterfell eventually. Um, uh, you know, I, I was... I was I'm, very much into kind of the magic imagery and symbolism and stuff in Bran's chapters, and I've always focused a lot on that, but people have made the strong argument that there's a lot of kind of Arthurian uh, hero's journey themes to Bran's chapters, as we've talked about in the podcast so far, and those have me leaning towards him coming home eventually, because that is, that is a pretty classic part of the hero's <laughs> journey, is that you gotta gotta eventually work your way home and kind of measure the gap between who you were and who you are now and all that good arc stuff. Um, so I... Uh, I do, I do think the show I I think the show is on the right path in terms of or the book path in terms of Bran feeling very kind of different and detached from the rest of his humanity, but uh, I do think it'll be in the context of Winterfell. I have changed my mind on that. How about you, sir? That's interesting. I mean, I I I, I was kind of in the similar boat where I figured that Bran would stay in the cave forever, but I do think that now with the show showing us hold the door and having Bran. And Mira escaped the cave, that that's likely going to be occurring in the books as well. It seems congruent with what um, 
David and Dan uh, found out from George, and I think that's that's an interesting uh, conclusion. Uh, my, mine that I've changed the most on my the character that I've changed my mind on the most significantly is probably not a very interesting one, and that is Tyrion Lannister. And uh, the reason why I changed my mind about Tyrion Lannister is, simply put, that, as, as you guys probably know by now, I I watched the first two seasons of Game of Thrones before I read the books. And after I had watched the two seasons, I figured that Tyrion was just this smart-ass dude who was smart and had all these witty things to say all the time and was always kind of uh, on on the game, and so, so to speak, and very politically oriented and smart that way. Um, and even when after I read the first five books, I still had that perspective in mind. But thanks to a few good friends, uh, one of which being one of the, my co-hosts here on this podcast, uh, my perspective on Tyrion has changed pretty significantly and that I see him uh, on a much more darker path, especially come A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons as Tyrion, you know, murders people, poisons people, rapes people, does all sorts of terrible, horrible things as a result of a lot of the traumas that he experienced, which of course doesn't absolve him of the the crimes that he's committed, but it does add a little bit of context, which I think is always a great thing about A Song of Ice and Fire is that a lot of the actions of a lot of the evil actions rather are framed in such a way that the uh, the context matters. So it matters for us as we're reading it. It matters for um, it matters in in the books too in terms of like progressing the characters forward on their arcs. So Tyrion, I think, was probably the character I've changed my mind on uh, the most. I, I think like a character like Stannis, I would say a little bit season five and the revelation that Stannis would burn Shireen did have an impact on me because I originally had not thought that Stannis was going to burn Shireen. I know. I know. I, I, I've done wrong by, I, I don't know why you guys even listen to me to be completely honest. Pity the poor fool. Pity, pity the poor fool. And the poor, and then the poor fool in this case is me. But I think I would still say that Tyrion's probably the, uh, the character that I've probably changed my mind on the most. I do think that Stannis's arc is, um, has shifted a bit in my mind, um, especially with his endgame with Shireen, which I imagine is going to be likely close to his endgame, but I guess we'll have to see come winds or a dream of spring or whatever that, uh, that event is going to occur. Yeah, I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen in a very different context that will change our understanding of it. But like you say, we shall split for the books. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree about Tyrion. I yep. think something that's very interesting about Tyrion on reread is realizing how much of his witticisms are there to hide his pain and anger. Uh, an alienation that it's a yeah. defense mechanism as he kind of gives away to John in their first meeting. Um, uh, so uh, as, as, as catchy as I drink and I know things as is as a catchphrase, I think it <laughs> kind of elides the painful relationship between those two things. <laughs> like it's, yes. it's not necessarily I drink and I know things so much as I know things. Therefore I drink as, 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 as kind of the source Correct. of Tyrion as a character. So I agree. Uh, my perspective as on him has changed as, Really, with the fifth book especially, Against the Dragons, I think changed a lot of people's perspective on Tyrion, for, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And again, I would recommend that everyone read, is it a six or seven part essay on Tyrion? I think it's seven uh, parts, right? Yeah, I don't even remember anymore. Did yeah, I wrote an essay series on Tyrion and Dance a couple of years ago. You can find it on poorquentin.tumblr.com. It's in the header. Um, and yeah, that was about the kind of reactions to reading those chapters coming off the first three books. Yeah, that's definitely great stuff. So if you have a, you know, a, a good afternoon or five and you want to delve deep into Tyrion's Dance with Dragons arc, feel free to check out poorquentin.tumblr.com and, and ch- check out some Emmett stuff because it is fantastic. Definitely, uh, definitely what's uh, one of the things, not not just the only thing that definitely puts you on 
uh, made you very prominent in my mind. Not just the only thing. Too of kind, course. sir. I missed you too. <laughs> it's been too long. The bromance continues. Quite. Moving on to our next question, we have a question from Sir Travis, who asks, quote, George said that very early on, he originally intended to not include the dragons. Instead, he was going to give the Targaryens psionic powers, like pyrokinesis, the ability to conjure fire and flame. He credits a fellow writer for pushing him to put them in and believes it improved the books, which I think we all agree is true. Yep. As a mother to the dragons, Danny's arc is very impacted by their birth and growth. Her enemies lust to control them or kill them. Drogon, Rhaegal, and Viserion will likely be pivotal to the endgame. But imagine, if you will, that Danny's three children never came to be. What would the story be like with their absence? How would it change Danny? How would readers view Danny wielding superpowers? What are some plot points that could have been developed or been greatly affected by this ability? Are there characters in the current story that may have this gift? What do you think, sir? Um, that's that's a, a great question. Um, I'll answer the last one first. Are there characters in the current story that may have this gift? Yes, I would say Melisandre has a pyrokinesis, the ability to conjure fire and flame through her spells and through her potions and uh, the things that she has in that chest that uh, is down to, I think she's used like two thirds of it by, by a dance with dragons, I think is what she, she estimates. I think that she's very much almost kind of like a, well, she may be a Targaryen after all, if, if the um, Shear Sea Star plus Blood Raven theory uh, pans out. Uh, that is that is the theory that done by Yoke Boy from the great Radio Westeros podcast, who has the theory that Melisandre is the daughter of Shear Sea Star and Blood Raven, the two two of the great bastards of Aegon the Fourth Targaryen. Um, we know that Melisandre is very old. That is something that George R. R. Martin had, has confirmed. So we'll see if that pans out. So maybe she's a as a Targaryen, she has that pyrokinesis, the ability to conjure fire and flame. Um, I th- things that'll be different. I, I, that's a, that's a tough question. I think. I almost get this sense that George, when he was looking at A Song of Ice and Fire and considering it, he had this idea of basing it much more closely on the War of the Roses. And as we all know, in the War of the Roses, it ends essentially with the um, the entry of, of House Tudor into the Royal Throne. So you have Henry VI, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not as strong on, on War of the Roses history, that, but House Tudor comes into power and they unseat the, um, the, the two warring parties, the, York, the Yorks and, excuse me, I have no fucking idea what I'm talking about. The Yorks and the, uh, <laughs> whatever the two warring sides of the Wars of the Roses are. The, the Yorkists York- and the Lancasters, I do believe. Yes, there you go. The Yorkists and the Lancasters, that is the Starks and the Lannisters in, in, in A Song of Ice and Fire. I think it probably would have looked somewhat similar to that with maybe some William the Conqueror stuff thrown in as well with Danny coming in and feeding them and taking building a kingdom for herself as a foreign-ish ruler and, and so forth. Um, I, I think you probably would have had things like the Dothraki, the Unsullied in some sense, perhaps, Cell swords seem to be very prominent early on in the Game of Thrones. Uh, I, I think it was probably going to be somewhat similar to what we'll probably see in The Winds of Winter or or Dream of Spring with Danny's arc. Uh, except for, of course, in this case, now that there's dragons. And so the dragons add a def- definite flavor to the story that gives it a interesting flavor. Because I know that one of the things that George has said is that dragons are like nuclear weapons. You can use them, but there's great consequences to using nuclear weapons, as you know the United States found at the end of World War II. Uh, and pretty much as the rest of the world found out and has found out since 1945. Um, I, I, yeah, but that's, that's a lot. There's a lot of, what would the story be like with their absence? It's hard to say. I, I I think it's going to, it would be much more like historical fiction ish. 
uh, with some of those superhero call it wild card elements. Cause that is another series that George R. Martin has, you know, a little bit of interest in uh, where he has a number of superheroes that have a number of these abilities, pyrokinesis, walking through water, disappearing, kind of being the invisible man and stuff like that. But I'm, I don't know. What do you think, Emmett? Well, certainly it does fit with Martin's well-established interest in superheroes. He's talked about that a number of times. He's included little Easter eggs like banners with a green arrow and blue beetle on them named after popular DC characters. So it does fit uh, there. Uh, I totally agree about Melisandre. Uh, she has those, those powers as clear, clearly demonstrated at the wall when she sets uh, the uh, eagle Veramiris possessing the flame. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, she doesn't seem to want to use it too often because, like with the Shadow Babies, it drains power and she wants to maintain a certain illusion. And that's where I think you really start getting to the difference between uh, Danny as a superhero in her own right versus Danny with, as the mother of dragons. Is I think there's a real difference between possessing powers versus having animals that possess powers. Especially when you get to the questions of responsibility and violence in Danny's arc, where she's, you know, you have the, the Drogon eating Hazia yes. and Danny wondering whether that makes her a monster. That would be much more direct if, like, you know, Avengers style, it was about Danny, Danny's powers going wrong. <laughs> and then she has to deal with the consequences of that. I think that's a very different and kind of more intimate and brutal story. As, as common as evil Danny think pieces are in the fandom now, imagine what they would be if Danny was directly shooting flames from her hands rather than agonizing over how to control an entity that is psychologically linked to her, but is not her. I think that, I think that would, I think that would be a different question. Um, and I think you see that with the classic uh, person as nuke analogy in Pulp Fiction, which is Doc Manhattan Watchmen. <laughs> yep. uh, on the one hand, you have the American government and the American media describing him as basically a walking nuclear weapon, as America's ultimate super weapon in the Cold War. But what makes that not work is that he can he can go to Mars. There's a great line of Watchmen, you know, America's strategic reserve has just gone to Mars <laughs> because he's still an individual person who can just make decisions like that. Right. It's, there's, there's an absurdity and a, and a terror in all national strategic planning being in the hands of one dude who can just leave. And I think that, I think you get more of that sense with Danny as a character, if she had the psionic powers rather than the sense of her trying to like, how do I control my dragons? I don't know anything about them. What am I going to do with them? Those are different questions. I think you'd be asking. I think you get a lot of the same story points. Uh, I think her enemies would talk about her in a lot of the same ways, but I think the, the, Questions in her inner monologue, I think, would be different if she was shooting flames out of her hands. Yeah, what's what, what I find interesting, though, too, is that the dragons seem to come late in, maybe not that late, but somewhat late in the process of the story. But the direwolves, the other magical animal, was always seemingly present because as... Martin's conception of, of A Song of Ice and Fire comes from him imagining that uh, having this kind of vision of a boy watching an execution in the woods and the snow and then finding the direwolves like that was like one of the first things that Martin never imagined about a song of ice and fire but i found it interesting that the direwolves these magical animals were always in conception but the dragons were, came somewhat later I, I, I am curious about uh martin's methodology and why he thought direwolves were were okay as in terms of like a magical animal like yeah that's fine but you know, Danny will have to use pyrokinesis in order to get ahead instead of Danny having dragons, which is a great contrast, of course, between, as we've talked about in previous chapters of, of Danny having dragons versus the Starks having the direwolves. Now, both the animals um, both symbolize the identity of the of the two houses, House 
Targaryen House Stark, as well as symbolize the uh, the kids, as we're going to talk about a bit later here as we delve into Sansa one, Sansa one and Edward three. But um, but yeah, I, I am curious about the Martin's way that he conceives the story and how like dragons come late in conception and how that pretty much revolutionizes revolutionizes the story, right? Because I mean, when people think about either Song of Ice and Fire or especially Game of Thrones, they think the dragons, right? That's like tits and dragons, as they say, as uh, Ian McShane said in uh, one of his uh, pressers for for season six, I think on a, a radio show in the UK. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe that's what Martin was resisting. The dragons, once you put dragons in a story, it's about the dragons. <laughs> like that's, you can see that across, I think, any uh, number of stories and across any number of uh, forms of media. Uh, there's something about dragons because they're, they're fantasy creatures and because they're designed to like be the locust because they're so big and, and powerful that, you know, they tend to... Maybe, maybe Martin didn't want his story kind of reduced to that when people talked about it. Um, yeah. You can see kind of Martin obviously being very kind of fretting about a lot of fantasy tropes and how they're presented, which is, again, something we'll get into shortly on the episode. <laughs> so maybe he maybe he was trying to avoid that situation. Like, it's not a fair analogy, but thinking about how, like, Return of the Jedi got labeled as the Ewok movie. Obviously, yeah. Ewoks are not analogous to dragons, but again, it's the fantasy and sci-fi, in terms of the marketing of it, the press around it, often seizes on the creatures, because that's the weird thing. That's True. the visual thing. So maybe Martin wanted to avoid that. Uh, obviously, you can see so much of the way he writes about magic, he tries to keep it very occult, very mysterious, very irrational. Yes. Uh, and surprising. And I think maybe that's another reason Martin ended up going with the dragons, because then look at how much he's minded of Danny not understanding her dragons and not knowing how to train them and work with them. And that's helped kept them, keep them very mysterious. Martin has, has spoken at length uh, about his distaste for kind of like more mana class RPG-like fantasy storytelling, <laughs> where everyone has clearly defined powers and you know what they are and they just kind of level up. Uh, which is, you might end up getting that if you had Danny with a psionic powers. Not necessarily, but you might end up falling into that trap, and it's easier to avoid that if the source of magic is ultimately external to her, and she has to find a way to control it rather than it just being something she has. Yeah, yeah, I can see, I can see the uh, the strength in that argument, but I, I, I do like the fact that there are dragons in the story. I think it definitely makes the the story a, a I think it makes the story better. Personally, I think it would be uh, as weird as this sounds. I, I would find it more ridiculous if. Danny was throwing around flames with her hands than uh, than having you know three fire breathing dragons. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know why, but I think I, it would be I think it would be difficult to take any scene with her where she's not doing that seriously. It would start to be like uh, you know you need you need some obstacles for a character like Danny because otherwise she gets overpowered way too quickly. Um, right, and I, I like that in dance that she, Martin puts her up against obstacles that her dragons can't solve. Uh, yeah. And I think that would be that would be a little less credible if, if again, if she were the source of the powers herself. And, and on, on the same note, I think that the uh, the thematic, the way that the dragons work thematically in Danny's arc is especially strong, especially in dance, uh, where she feels that, you know, that she's she's the child, she's the mother of monsters. You know, she feels that if they're monsters, then so am I. Is, is the 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 thing that she concludes one of her chapters in Dance with Dragons with, and that's something that's very powerful in the narrative and very thematically uh, congruent with what Martin is, the message that Martin is trying to communicate about how Danny is in some ways resembles the dragons, and the dragons in some ways resemble Danny and that whole way that dragons symbolize violence 
and also have a bit of a will of their own works a whole lot better than my mind than, than having Danny having kind of these superpowers that she wields and she just has to learn how to wield them correctly. And there will be a bit of that, I believe, in The Winds of Winter especially. And, and it really comes at the end of A Dance of Dragons where Danny learns how to how to fly Drogon without using the whip and without using the um, the wheel where they kind of do that mind meld type thing that, that seems to have uh, pushed the Targaryens along in... in um, domesticating their dragons to an extent that they could ride them and then use them in battle. But at the same time, I, 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 I much prefer that over, over some sort of superpower. Although I, I like Melisandre as a character, and I think that the fact that she doesn't use that magic works well uh, to to help contain that sense of mystery and that sense of the occult, like you said, in, in her character and the use of magic. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it works for Melisandre because she's a supporting character. Correct. Uh, I think with, with Danny, I think... And with Bran, it works better that their their powers are, are limited and scary, and they don't really know how to, you know. I think, uh, and that that's helped along in Danny's case by by them being a beast she has to control rather, rather than internal powers. And it also helps that she makes the decision to step into the pyre, and that leads to their birth. So that that gives her some control over the situation. That I think makes it a lot more interesting. Absolutely. So, yeah, Sir Travis. Terrific question. I'm, I, you might have gotten more than you bargained for in asking it, but that's kind of how we roll. Precisely, sir. Absolutely. So, as we transition to our analysis of these two chapters, the way that we're going to do this is we're going to talk about uh, Sansa 1, and then we're, we'll get into a bit of depth on Sansa 1, talk about our likes and dislikes, and then we're going to roll right into Edward 3, where we're going to talk about... We're gonna do where we'll do the synopsis of it, then we'll do some depth, likes and dislikes, and then we'll kind of roll some of the groundwork, the foreshadowing together, and kind of finish on up with a bit of theorizing, because these two chapters have a whole lot of um, groundwork and a whole lot of uh, thought put into the feudal structure of Westeros, and that's how we're going to kind of conclude this episode. So I hope you guys enjoy it. This will be a bit of a longer episode, so take us along for a long car ride. Uh, for a marathon as well. If you guys are going to be running a sub three hour marathon, you know, feel free to take us along for that for for a little marathon run. I don't know why I'm I don't know why I'm keeping why I keep talking, but that's okay. So, anyways, I'm imagining I'm imagining the Flash listening to to us while doing a marathon. He would do, while while, listen, while doing a bunch of different little marathons. He would listen to this piece at a time. So, if you're listening, Barry Allen, do that. Oh, yes, please, please, please listen to us, please. <laughs> Okay, so, um, like I said, we'll be doing a synopsis of Sansa 1, and that is starting right now. Sansa Stark awakens to find her father on another hunt with Robert. So Sansa joins Septa Mordain for breakfast, in which the eldest daughter of Ned and Catelyn feeds bacon to her direwolf under the table and talks about her upcoming ride in the Queen's carriage with Queen Cersei and Princess Marcella. <sighs> Do I have to go on? Sadly, Jeff, your duty demands it, and we all must do our duty, great or small. Great or small. All right. <sighs> the, sibling rivalry, the sibling rivalry between Sansa and Arya we glimpse in Arya's first chapter reemerges with Sansa hoping that she would see her betrothed, that is Joffrey, today, and that the only thing she feared was that Arya would ruin the experience of seeing Joffrey. Asking to be excused, Sansa steps outside of Lord Eddard's tent to find Arya and instead sees the camp in motion. Carts creak, men break down tents for the movement ahead of them, wagons are loaded. Sansa looks around for Arya and finds her at the banks of the Trident, brushing mud off of her direwolf Nymeria. Sansa instructs Arya to put on something nice. They're traveling in the Queen's whale house, but Arya refuses. 
Ari and her friend Micah are going riding in search of Rhaegar's rubies in the Trident, and the cart doesn't even have windows. So Arya says no. Thank you very much, Sansa. Sansa is horrified that Arya would, wouldn't find honor in riding with the queen. Sansa hates riding horses and insists that Arya will come to ride with the queen. Arya again refuses and tells Sansa that she doesn't like the queen. She's going to go out riding with Micah. Thank you very much. Sansa tells Arya that she'll go by herself and eat every fucking lemon cake and have the best time of her life without her. Sansa departs thinking, why couldn't Arya be sweet and delicate and kind like Princess Marcella? She would have liked to have a sister like that. Sansa reflects on how Arya looks like Jon and once even asked her mother, Catelyn, if Arya was a bastard too. She wasn't. Wandering back to the camp, Sansa stumbles across a party gathered around the Queen's wheelhouse. The small council has sent riders to escort the King's party the rest of the way back to King's Landing. Two seeming knights stand in the front of the Queen, one adorned in King's Guard white and the one in steel plate of a deep forest green. It's only then that Sansa realizes that there's a third man, a gaunt, grim, silent man wearing chainmail and boiled leather. Sansa is terrified of this man. The third man turns his head and looks at Sansa, and the girl becomes ever more terrified. She takes a step back and bumps into none other than Sandra Clegane. You were shaking, girl, the man says. Do I frighten you so much? The hound did frighten her, but not half as much as the other man did. Sandra laughs, but then Sansa's dire wolf, Lady, comes up and sends the crowd into a tizzy. The two knights draw their swords, but then Cersei sends Joffrey over to Sansa to quote-unquote protect her. The crown prince dispatches Sandra Clegane, telling him to go away. Sansa admits that her fear is over the other man. They tell Sansa that the scary man is none, the, is none other than Sir Ellen Payne, the king's justice. That is the king's executioner. The two men introduce themselves. The first is Sir Barristan Selmy, Lord Commander of the King's Guard. The other allows Sansa to puzzle out his identity. Sansa correctly surmises that the other man is Lord Renly Baratheon, a terrorist in service of his brother, King Robert. Just had to throw that one in there. Go on. <laughs> Queen Cersei then tells Sansa that unfortunately the carriage ride has been has to be canceled today on account of the small uh, on account of small council business. But no worries, the Queen tells Joffrey to entertain Sansa. This sends Sansa into a frenzy of romantic feeling. And what shall they do? How about riding, Joffrey suggests. Oh, I love riding, Sansa replies. They ride through the land. Joffrey shows Sansa his sword. Yeah, we'll go with that phrasing. His sword is called Lion's Tooth. They leave Sansa's direwolf behind to explore the countryside. They track by the river, explore a cave, and they follow a shadow cat. They find a holdfast. Joffrey orders wine and food from the people there. They eat fresh trout and drink wine. More wine than Sansa usually has. Finally, Joffrey decides that he wants to head over to the place where his father, in quotation marks, and Rhaegar met in battle on the Trident 15 years before. They ride to the site, and then they hear a snack, snack, snack. Joffrey unsheathes his sword, and they approach the noise, only to find Arya in stick battle with an older boy named Micah. Confronting them, Joffrey mocks the boy, telling him to pick up a stick and face the prince in combat. The boy freezes. It's only a stick, my lord. It's no sword. Joffrey doesn't care. He presses the point of his own sword against the boy's cheek, drawing blood. Stop it, Arya screams, grabbing a branch. Stay out of this, Sansa cautions sir. I won't hurt him much, Joffrey tells Arya. And then Arya clubs the prince in the back of the head with a stick. Everything then dissolves into utter fucking chaos. Joffrey catches the next stick blow with his sword. Joffrey hurls a stone at the boy's head. It misses, but it hits Joffrey's horse. The horse sprints away. Joffrey begins slashing at Arya with his sword, backing her up against a tree. Sansa sobs, and then Nymeria jumps Joffrey, biting his arms. Get it off! Get it off! Get it off! Joffrey screams. 
Arya calls out Nymeria's name, and the wolf releases Joff's now bloody arm. She didn't hurt you. Much. Arya grabs Joffrey's sword, stands over him, and just before she stabs him, Arya throws the sword into the trident. Arya mounts her horse and makes like a bat out of hell. Sansa rushes over to Joffrey, attempting to comfort him. Just then, his eyes snap open, and the crown prince looks at Sansa with the vilest contempt. Then go, and don't touch me. And that is a Game of Thrones Sansa won. So I kind of like get around because I've, I've, I have this reputation of being a Sansa hater, but I, uh, I really actually enjoyed this chapter a lot. It's a pretty stellar chapter, if I do say so. Um, so let's talk about this actually really good chapter uh, before we get into Editor 3, which is another really good chapter. So Emmett, what is, this in this, what is this in the document about Sansa being a fantasy audience? Sure. Well, this is, I think, the, the key fact about Sansa Stark and her role in the first book that I think uh, contextualizes a lot of the hate she gets, not all of it, but a lot of it, Um, and that is that she is meant as a a critical lens on the fantasy audience, on people who read fantasy books a lot, on on, on the genre as Martin sees it, as someone who, you know, wrote fantasy, read fantasy, but was not inculcated in the genre, wrote in a lot of other genres, and is coming at it with something of a jaundiced eye. Uh, I think she's a vital character for what Martin is doing with the genre, not so much smashing it to bits as taking it apart, taking it apart, examining all the pieces with a loving but knowing eye, dusting them off and reassembling them better. Through Sansa's understandings of songs and stories and how they relate to real life, the author critiques fantasy specifically as a set of assumptions that do not prepare her for life in the era from which fantasy draws. Basically, Martin's problem with fantasy, and he's expressed this multiple times, is that it lies about the medieval era. Hmm. And, you know, you can argue about whether genre fiction is responsible to tell historical truths. That's certainly a debate people can <laughs> have many perspectives on. But that's clearly something that irritates Martin is that fantasy is 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 pretending that the in-universe propaganda of the medieval, medieval age about glorious noble princes and princesses who would, you know, the, the peasants would bow with a smile and that so much of fantasy swallows that uncritically and acts like that's how things really were. And Martin uses Sansa as a true believer as a way to kind of expose that. Interesting. Um, again, it's all, it's all about the assumptions she makes. And you can see that in this chapter that it comes through most clearly regarding Joffrey. Uh, Sansa's most dangerous assumption that she makes in this first book is that Joffrey and Cersei are good people. Uh, and the reason that they're good in her eyes, the reason that she's in love with Joffrey despite that she admits not knowing him, is because, quote, he was all she ever dreamt her prince should be. Tall and handsome and strong, with hair like gold. Uh, and that's because she was raised on songs, and that's how the princes look in the songs, and they're glorious and charismatic and charming, and they make you happy ever after. Um, and Joffrey looks like that, and that's 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 all she... Well, she doesn't think it through any deeper than that. And the problem is that she doesn't understand yet that songs are written that way in order to get that reaction out of her. <laughs> she is specifically being pandered to. Singers need young noble women to love their songs. That's how the singers get food and lodging at the young noble women's father's castles, because the young noble women sigh and flutter over the songs. Sansa yeah. thinks this is an accurate reflection of reality, when what it actually is is skillful marketing. And that, I think, is Martin's ultimate critique about medieval fantasy, is that this is, this is just marketing. This is not accurate human storytelling. This is just a gloss, and it's it's something that needs to be pierced. And yet the, the fact that Sansa specifically dreams of Joffrey as his hair like gold and, you know, like says, I got a day with my prince, it's all I could have wanted, and yells at Arya that you're spoiling it later, she's framing him as a reward, as something she gets for being good, whereas Arya is not, so she doesn't get a prince. 
Joffrey carries with them a crown and a promise of happiness. That's, you know, Joffrey is the thing Sansa wants. That's her goal. That's what motivates her. You know, Danny wants to find home in this first book. John wants to find a way to belong as a bastard. What Sansa wants is Joffrey. Uh, and, you know, that's it couldn't stand out in more contrast to the second book, and all she wants is to get away from Joffrey as fast yeah. as she possibly can. But in this first book, she wants him because he is a synecdoche for song. He is a stand-in for all the princes she's ever worshipped over, you know, when the lute and the harp were played in the halls of Winterfell. Uh, Joffrey seems to, seems to be, at first, that brought to life. And that is that's something she desires more than anyone else, just as, in Martin's mind, the fantasy reader would want that. You know, it's, a, it's kind of a little bit of an aside, but it's also funny to me how... Uh, Martin kind of doubles down on this idea that songs are not portraying reality and uh, are untrue and that they're marketing by pretty much showing every single singer in all of Westeros to be a total fucking asshole. Like you have Marillion, who is essentially attempts to rape Sansa later on. You've got Darian, who betrays the Night's Watch and goes and spends... The money he plays for the he basically abandoned Sam and Maester Aemon and Gilly, in, in Bravos. Uh, you've got uh, you know even a character like Thomas Sevens who is, I guess, a good guy. Um, you know he's also has bastards in all of of the Riverlands that he doesn't really take care of, and I guess he's not really that much of a good guy. I guess he fights for a good cause with the Brotherhood of Banners, but uh, you know it's it, it kind of the way that singing and songs are introduced here in, in Sansa is kind of that higher overarching, like here is the meta critique of what fantasy attempts to portray in what the medieval era was like, you know, and that's the kind of stuff that I remember growing up in kind of the Prince Valiant type thing, the kind of the way that, um, uh, King Arthur stories were told uh, that I that even read growing up was very much about King, King Arthur and his knights and the, the chivalrous knights, and then, of course, later on, I read a bunch of other kind of more uh, grounded Arthurian fiction. Um, but but yeah, it's 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 terrific that way that that Martin is uh, deconstructing our own expectations uh, of fantasy and and what the medieval era was like by using Sansa and having her own delusions about what what being a noble is like, what what marrying the handsome prince is like, and having a terrific, good looking mother in law is like. You know, it's it's kind of a a good way that Martin kind of enforces this this kind of critiques the the narrative or rather critiques the genre as well as brings out a lot of really good character moments too in in Sansa and, and uses that framework that Sansa has grown up hearing about and from old Nan and among other probably singers that came to Winterfell and then having that being subverted over and over again throughout a Game of Thrones especially in this chapter and then you know as we, as you said, in the Clash of Kings, she's wants to get away from all of the bullshit of what the the delusions uh, her delusions are open and shattered, and she wants to get away from that. And actually, she's she grows essentially throughout the uh, throughout the narrative. Very true, and I agree completely with what you said about singers. That's obviously very deliberate on Martin's part that they're assholes and or they suffer horrible fates. Marillion uh, has his eyes put out and his fingers uh, not his fingers cut off. Right, is his eye? No, this is fingers cut off, but they leave him his tongue. That's what happens to Marillion. If I remember the grisly details of what happens there, uh, Simon yeah. Silvertongue obviously gets put into the bowl of brown and flea bottom. And while he's not uh, actively sleazy the way Darian and uh, Marillion are, he still is trying to get money out of Tyrion and like favors out of Tyrion. 
yep. in response for keeping secrets, and he's like threatening. He's threatening to to put the truth about Tyrion and Shay in a song, and thus expose him to the court. So that's like a song is being weaponized. A song is being turned against you, and that's very different from how Sansa thinks about the songs. Oh, and yeah. yeah, regarding Thomas, regarding Thomas Sevens, fighting fighting the good fight for sure, but. Uh, even he, like, yeah, he's exposed as using his songs to, to, to lure women into bed, and then he abandons the kids. Yep. Uh, there's, when Lady Smallwood brings up how many sons he has, uh, it's mentioned that Tom clearly did not care for the subject. Um, <laughs> and that's something that's, that's something that Sansa, uh, you know, wouldn't know to think about from the songs she's listened to. That, uh, you know, that all, at the end of these, at the end of these romantic liaisons, Sansa, in your songs, what happens to that kid? Well, in the real world, they often get left behind by the singers, or or the way Tom, uh, you know, made fun of Edmure with his the song about his his, uh, his floppy fish, dick. the <laughs> floppy fish, right? And obviously, there are worse fates than having someone make fun of you for whiskey dick. Like I'm not trying to say, oh, how dare Tom, what an evil man, but it is a completely unnecessarily pun intended dick move against Edmure. <laughs> For, for no reason. Uh, there's no indication that Edmure was, you know, being exploitative to Tom or in, in any way warranted this. Uh, it's very petty and very pointlessly mean. So, yeah, I think that is meant... Martin is indicating that, you know, look at, look at the context of your stories. Think critically about your stories, I think, is the message he's trying to get across with Sansa's POV. Don't just accept them on face value. Think about what the author is bringing to the table. Think about the ideas behind the genre. When you're cheering for something or booing for something, think about why you're doing it. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to hate fantasy, because Martin doesn't, or hate stories. True. But True. You, you, you have to be more aware of what's going on around him, and Sansa, at this moment, in this chapter, is is completely in the bubble. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. She is totally in the bubble here. And it's it's funny, as we were saying, I was saying uh, in pre-production... That uh, this this chapter is essentially a, a one chapter arc. This is like Sansa's almost like a essentially what Sansa is going to be dealing with throughout the Game of Thrones is this chapter here where she has these expectations of what life is going to be like, and she has those expectations shattered by the realities of of the people and the events that she experiences throughout a Game of Thrones to the to her final chapter being forced by Joffrey by her beloved prince that she thinks of him in this chapter being forced by Joffrey to look at her look at her father's head that's attached to a spike you know that's it, it really is it's it's not grim dark again I would not say it's grim dark I, I would say it's a re realistic portrait of of how the events that Sansa is going, the expectations that Sansa have are going to be not just expectations, but the delusions that she has are going to be constantly subverted and, and, and oftentimes shattered by the reality of some awful shitty people that she's going to be dealing with. People like Joffrey, people like Cersei, people like Littlefinger, who she's still dealing with by the end, by the end of A Feast for Crows and Into the Winds of Winter. Yeah, it's not grimdark because Martin gets it. He sympathizes with where Sansa is coming from and understands why she thinks the way she did, and he you get this wistful sense that he wishes she was right about how yeah. the world works, but she's just not. And it's not making fun of her. It's not saying that she's hopeless. It's saying that this is your brain on fantasy, and you have to, as, as alluring as the songs and stories are, you have to think a little more about what's going into them and why you're getting out what you're getting out of them to examine your own instincts a little bit. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Martin, uh, Martin understands the allure of songs and stories as something that's universal. It's not something that's 
inherently limited to children, and it's not something that's just limited to, you know, the pretty in-group clique children that Sansa is often kind of cast as. Uh, One thing I really like about this chapter is that uh, Arya is also really into the songs and stories. I think the the show kind of has presented this dynamic, I don't know how intentional this is, of Arya as the hard-headed realist, and Sansa Mm -hmm. as the naive one with her head in the clouds. There's the most girls are idiots line that we've skewered before. Yes. Um, But... Uh, when Sansa and Arya are talking uh, early in this chapter, as you noted in your summary, uh, Arya says, quote, Micah and I are going to ride upstream and look for rubies at the ford. Rubies? Sansa said lost. What rubies? Arya gave her a look like she was so stupid. Rhaegar's rubies. This is where King Robert killed him and won the crown. And you imagine Arya saying it just like that, just with those those big eyes. And yeah. Like, being in, like she's in, as into the romance of the stories as Sansa is. She's exactly as swept up. In, in the myth of it all. And of course, she's going to look for, for rubies that fell into the river years ago and have washed up on the quiet aisle or out to sea. Or like, yeah, obviously, there's no way she's going to find the rubies. Right. That's, a perfect, that's a perfect kid thing. Like, you've heard the stories, you know you're in the area, you think you're going to find them. Uh, and that's, that's the, it's no different from Sansa's worldview. It's just that Arya likes different songs and goes about expressing her fandom for them differently. But this is not the case of... of Arya understanding and seeing through them immediately and Sansa being the one stuck behind. They're, they they have that in common, and I think that makes it a lot more interesting than just a purely oppositional dichotomy would be. So here's kind of an interesting kind of meta question about what's more of like a fandom question than a meta question. Do you think that the fandom, I would, I would say that there are, I mean, and we, we know many women who enjoy the Song of Ice and Fire, but there's many men that, that do as well. I, I've feel, and, and maybe I can speak for myself for not being the Sansa's biggest fan. I, I never hated Sansa. I just just get that out of the way. I never hated Sansa even back in the day um, when I was just a wee lad of, you know, 31 years of age. Um, but, uh, but, uh, but no, I uh, there's this feeling that I get that Arya's love for the songs and love for fantasy genre type stuff is overlooked because Arya's interests and the songs are more masculine oriented. If you want to talk about traditional gender roles of, of men being the fighters, the warriors, the treasure seekers, that sort of the adventurers, that sort of thing. And that's why I always kind of given a pass for going and seeking after Rhaegar's rubies. Cause there's a romantic impulse there that appeals more to men than opposed, as opposed to Sansa's ideals about the, the chivalric heroes who, who fought for their ladies and, and, you know, this this ideal that Sansa imbues into into Joffrey, uh, do you think that there's the the fact that Sansa's fantasies are more feminine oriented and Arya's are more masculine oriented? Kind of gives that dichotomy so that people are like, man, fuck Sansa, like she's awful, I hate her. But Arya at the same time kind of gets a pass, even though that she's exhibiting the very same traits and characteristics of Sansa being into the stories and being into the songs that 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 her sister is. Absolutely. I don't think it's a controversial statement, or it shouldn't be to observe that uh, our culture, which is to read American pop culture, uh, <laughs> hates teenage girls. Yes. We hate them, and we yes. constantly belittle them and the things they like and the way they like them. I mean, look at. I mean, it, tw- the Twilight books are terrible and have some really, really disturbing ideas in them. But they, the the avalanche of hate they got and people who just enjoyed them for dumb escapist fun, the yeah. hate they got was just so disproportionate and, and 
just bitter. And it's... I think that does feed into some of the reaction to Sansa. Absolutely. Um, that, yeah, the, the things she's into because they're quote-unquote typical girl things is, is seen as, like, the baseline or inherently uninteresting or obvious. Um, even though I think... You can certainly argue Arya is, is just full of classic tropes right here at the beginning of the story. I mean, she's the classic tomboy. How is That's that's every bit as much of a genre cliche right. as the fairy tale princess. I mean, we, we've had girls, you know, putting you inside the real world just in stories about the medieval era. There's so many about, you know, girls dressing up as boys and doing masculine things. Look at the story of Danny Flint. Like, that's, yep. that's, that's not... It might be a socially disapproved of thing, but it's not this out-of-nowhere thing that is disconnected from the romantic world Sansa is living in. There are, there, I think there are there are clear connections and parallels here that I do think gets overlooked by, by some of the fandom. I think, um, as we'll get into a little later, I think there are, there is grounds to not like Sansa or not like her worldview at this point in the story, but I don't think... Sure. I think that's more to do with class, which we'll get into a, a bit more as we go. Um, but, the, yeah, the relationship between Sansa and Arya definitely brings that out of, uh, out of people. Because, like you say, Arya has more traditionally masculine pursuits. Um, she loves to ride. She loves to sword fight, uh, go exploring. And Sansa does think of Arya as, like, as the obstacle. Like, she, as I said, she's got her quest. Joffrey's the object of her quest. Uh, and she thinks of Arya as, as, the, as the obstacle in her way. She quote from this chapter, The only thing that scared her about today was Arya. <laughs> Arya had a way of ruining everything. You never knew what she would do. And I love that line. You never knew what she would do. Like, Sansa likes things to be expected. That's, again, like a storyteller thing, right? Like, she likes to know the tropes. She likes to know the beats. She doesn't like to be surprised. Arya is a, a, a walking plot twist, and Sansa doesn't like that. Like, it reminds me of the, the kid... In the, the, the ultimate, I think, like, meta-examination of the fantasy audience is The Princess Bride, specifically the movie of The Princess Bride, <laughs> when you have the framing device of the little kid listening to the grandpa's story and being like, wait, 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 I don't want to hear about kissing, I want to get to the fighting. We mentioned this when, uh, regarding Bran, like, that's yes. how Bran is during the Night of the Laughing Tree story. Um, and then later, like, the kid starts getting into it, starts getting really upset about the plot twist and really wants to hear more uh, because he's becoming a better listener and he's becoming more invested in the story. Uh, whereas Sansa at this point is like in this or like very kind of uh, like early unadvanced uh, non-critical era of reading where uh, she just she wants things to be predictable. She she does not she does not go into a story you know wanting to be fulfilled and enriched and changed by it as as we ideally should, right? right. She wants she wants predictability. Sansa wants affirmation from stories. She wants to be told you got it right already, you know what you're doing keep on keeping on and, and Arya does not help her do that yeah that's a great point I think that's terrific I think I totally agree per, per the norm <laughs> well thank you sir <laughs> we, we, we get along so beautifully we too um, we do we're an inspiration that way but I mean so you have that kind of sense that Arya you know they're bashing heads in some way but then you have this I think a very deliberate moment from Martin at the outset of this chapter uh, they're they're eating breakfast um uh, Sansa's being told that Robert and Ned are going out hunting and uh, she, she quotes she was feeding a piece of bacon to Lady under the table the direwolf took it from her hand as delicate as a queen Sepamordain sniffed in disapproval a noble lady does not feed dogs at her <laughs> table she said breaking off another piece of, uh, of cornbread and letting the honey drip down into her bread uh, she's not a dog she's a direwolf Sansa pointed out as Lady licked her fingers with a rough tongue anyway father said we could keep them with us if we want 
You're a good girl, Sansa, but I do vow when it comes to that creature, you're as willful as your sister, Arya. Uh, I love this for, for a lot of reasons. One is the classic uh, child uh, pedantic logic of she's not technically a dog. She's a dire wolf. Like, that's that's the that's the classic kid move. In our, and unfortunately, some adults argue this way, too. But the, the classic kid move in arguments where you, you seize on a technicality uh, because you don't, have, you don't have any other actual argument to make. So you just do that. I love that. Um, uh, I love the something we'll get into when we get to Edward III, the sandal foreshadowing in terms of, of feeding a dog at her table. Yes. Uh, when the hound, of course, will be her, you know, her dog in some ways going forward. Um, but yeah, the main point of that, I think, is to, yeah, that you are as willful as your sister Arya. That when it comes to the dire wolves, they're the same. When it comes to the symbol of their starkness, their heritage, their house, Sansa and Arya are the same. They're part of the same pact, as, Mar- as Ned will say later when he's talking to Arya about don't hate Sansa, she's part of your family. This is this is what links them together, and where they, even Septimordain, who is always dismissive of Arya, even she says that Sansa and Arya are alike in this regard. <laughs> and I think that's that almost feels to me, especially coming back to it, like a preemptive strike from the author, like him saying, like, okay, I know a lot of you are not going to like Sansa. And I know a lot of you are going to think she's completely opposite from Arya. But I just want to say right from the outset, it's not quite the case. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I think uh, I, the two sisters are more alike than than you would see, and even on first on first read, even though you have Martin essentially saying, "Guys, these the, the, they're very similar. They're similar. They're not even like two. Uh, was it was it later that Ned says they're two sides of the same coin or something to that effect? I can't remember off the top of my head." I think he compares them to the sun and the moon, don't they? Doesn't he? Maybe. If I recall correctly. Maybe. We, shouldn't, we should know our stuff more than this, folks. But we should. I seem to recall him comparing them to the sun and the moon. Um, but, I mean, it, it only grows more poignant, really, after they, they're apart later in the books because they both long for home. Yeah. Uh, and, again, that, that starkness is what they have in common. They both want to go back to Winterfell. They both want to be reunited with their family. And, like, you know, speaking as, as someone with siblings, like, that stuff <laughs> matters so much more than what you like. Which oh, stories yeah. you like, or what you like doing on your day off, whether it's sword fighting or sewing. That's not what matters. What matters is that you you both have this foundation, and that foundation is connected to your family and where you come from. If you have that, your sibling relationship is strong, even if you have fights. Because I think people make a lot people make a lot about Arya and Sansa hating each other at the beginning, and I'm pretty, like they're little girls, they're sisters. Sisters right. fight and say horrifying things to each other constantly. You know, I've, 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 some of the most people in those devious brains I've met are little girls. They can they can come up with wonderful fiendish psychological traps for each other. <laughs> but they can grow up and still be best friends because they're kids. Right, um, right. And I, I think that's that's something we, we have, to, have to have to remember here. That this, they're, they're, the, the, this is not like Ned versus Cersei, like adults with fundamentally different value systems yeah. realizing that one of them is going to have to die. Like, that's not what this is. These are kids. And I think both Martin's, uh, both through Septimordain here and through Ned later, I think you see Martin emphasizing these differences, while they have an impact, are superficial. Ultimately. Oh, yeah. You know, you should try to recognize the the good hearts beating beneath uh, both, both of them. Yeah, excellent point. There's another sibling relationship as well where that gets that gets emphasized, and that is the uh, relationship between Ned and his sister, that is Lyanna. And what's interesting is that seemingly Arya is essentially not, she's not, she's not Lyanna writ small, but she's, she's very much 
she very much resembles Ned's younger sister, Lyanna, uh, and that comes out pretty strongly in this chapter. Yeah, that's a very good point. The uh, Obviously, Ned will make this parallel explicit in Arya 2, I think it is, when they have their conversation. Yep. Uh, and, and Ned says that uh, Arya has the wolf blood, just like Brandon and Lyanna did before her. Uh, but the parallels are elsewhere, that she loves sword fighting. We know Lyanna loves that. Even clacking sticks together, we know Lyanna loves that from Bran's dream and uh, dream, not dream, his weird vision in uh, Dance with Dragons. Uh, even even the way she calls Benjen stupid in that, that vision. <laughs> Be quiet, stupid. It's only water. That's so very Arya. Yep. Uh, Bran even thinks she's it's Arya at first and only realizes it's not when he realizes that the kid is not him. And it's, in fact, almost certainly Benjen. Uh, one parallel I really love, I didn't really notice until rereading this time, is that uh, is something, a little note that Arya finds in the neck. Quote, one day she came back grinning her horsey grin, her hair all tangled in her clothes covered in mud, clutching a raggedy bunch of purple and green flowers for father. Sansa kept hoping he would tell Arya to behave herself and act like the highborn lady she was supposed to be, but he never did. He only hugged her and thanked her for the flowers. That just made her worse. Um, and that's, I mean, Lyanna loved flowers. Lyanna was, uh, ellipsis fond of flowers, that famous Ned quote. Uh, and so was Arya. And of course, so from Sansa unthinking from the outside, like, dad, why aren't you disciplining her? But of course in Ned's mind, it's like, oh my God, my heart, my little girl is just like my sister bringing back the flowers. I love her so much. Like you can, you can see why Ned cherishes her in part because, uh, he lost Lyanna so young and Arya is, like you said, not a direct parallel, but a lot like her. Uh, oh, so yeah. that, and, and and we know that you know Liana was super fond of the songs too. As as much of a badass and tomboy as she was, that doesn't mean she was immune to romance. She sniffled when when Rhaegar sang his sad song. Uh, she may well have ran off with him on that basis, on the kind of swept up in the romance of it all. So again, Martin is showing us that that every everyone has stories they believe in. This is not a unique thing for young women or or girls who like. F- you know, flowers and fancy things. Everyone believes in the stories and the songs, and everyone has to go through this, uh, this growth, this this understanding of, of the game of Thrones, so to speak. And everyone has the scales fall from their eyes, and what determines who you are is how you deal with that. And of course, how Sansa deals with that is something we're going to be uh, getting into heavily going forward. Yeah, for sure. I believe it's. I believe Arya is, as well as she's growing up, she starts to physically resemble Lyanna a lot more. I mean, they both have the brown hair, um, even even at this stage, Arya does. But I think by feast and dance, when Arya's in Bravos, she starts to have a lot of the physical traits that that Lyanna does. Um, but it's 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 all it's it's all there. I think it's it's terrific. I, I, that that catch about the flowers is uh, something I've never seen either. But that's great. That's that's terrific. Love that. Well, well, thank you. Yeah, uh, one more important thing to think to say about the Sansa Arya relationship is that uh, it's you know gender politics and assumptions about gender play a role not just in how the fandom is reacted to those characters, but in universe in the relationship. The very first line of dialogue between Sansa and Arya is from Sansa to Arya: "Quote, you better put on something pretty." Like immediately, the relationship is being put in this context of how do you be a woman? How do you present yourself as a woman, especially a noble woman? And Arya is not living up to that, and not only because she runs off and, you know, enjoys fighting and, and riding, but because she, as, as Sansa said in that quote, she, she's off, she doesn't mind getting dirty and getting her clothes ripped and torn, and that's just not supposed to be done. You know, both people live up to your image of your gender and also live up to your image of your class. Uh, and that points forward to things in Arya's storyline, when she ends up at Acorn Hall, having to wear that acorn dress 
and she's stuffed into it, even though it doesn't is not what she wants to wear. And Lady Smallwood's trying to talk to her about needlework, but they mean two different things. And then Gendry says she smells and looks pretty, and now she doesn't know how to deal with that. <laughs> so this 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 is the foundation for a lot of how Arya deals with gender gender presentation going forward. There's that heartbreaking couple moments in Storm where she wonders if her family will even want her back yeah. because she's so dirty and her clothes are ripped, and that breaks your heart because you know they want her back more than anything. Yeah. But the reason she wonders that is because she's been brought up in the same world as Sansa that tells her if your if your hair is dirty, if your clothes are ripped, you're not being a woman right. And that means you are not fitting into society. And what both Sansa and Arya have to come to understand is that this is bullshit. Right. And that is that is I think where you get to Sansa as a lens for social critique, and I think this is where you have lens to grounds to critique Sansa, or at least her worldview at this point. I think the idea that she's a bully to Arya, I think, is somewhat overblown. Like I said, I think the idea that she's completely different from Arya is silly. Uh, I think castigating her for believing so much in the songs and the stories that she makes those assumptions about Joffrey and Cersei is silly. But I do think when you uh, get to the lens of class, I think this is where you do see Martin heavily critiquing Sansa's worldview. Uh, that she looks at everything on the surface, that... You know, she she thinks of Arya as as having been a bastard, maybe because she she looks like John. Uh, that's that's how kind of the relationship works. She says, uh, "Quote: Sansa could never understand how two sisters born <laughs> only two years apart could be so different. It would have been easier if Arya had been a bastard, like their half brother John. Easier, easier for her, because then everyone fit into their categories, right? Mm-hmm. Like she says, she wants everything. Arya, you never know what she would do, and that's confusing to Sansa. If she was, if Arya was a bastard, Sansa would get it." Like, that would, for her, that would make Arya make sense. Anytime Arya did something Sansa would find weird, Sansa could go, oh, she's a bastard. And that, for Sansa, would be an explanation. But there is no explanation. Sansa just has to deal with this. Uh, Quote, she even looked like Jon, with the long face and brown hair of the Starks, and nothing of their lady mother in her face or her coloring. And Jon's mother had been common, or so people whispered. See, Sansa thinking of common as bad. That's the part of Sansa's mindset that I think Martin is really critiquing here more than anything else. Uh, you know, you see that when uh, Sansa says that, why would you want to ride off into the neck? Quote, it's all fields and farms and holdfasts. And Arya says, no, it's not. If you if you come riding, you'd see. Uh, that, you know, there's a whole world out there that Sansa is, is keeping herself off from. She prefers the wheelhouse. You, know, you had Ned and Robert riding away from the wheelhouse into the wild. Sansa, at this point, likes that bubble. Uh, and and w- once again, Arya is not going out just to find the real stuff. She talks about finding a, quote, haunted watchtower with Micah. So she's still doing childish things, but she's getting out into the world and talking to people. At this point, Sansa is not doing that. Uh, that's going to start to change a little bit as the story goes, but I think that is Martin's main critique of Sansa's worldview in this level, in this chapter, that it's very kind of class-blind and superficial. And that's something we'll get into a little bit later. Yeah, you know, it just kind of came to me that the, um, the Cersei's wheelhouse definitely symbolizes Sansa's worldview because... It's brought it's brought up several times in the chapter how the wheelhouse doesn't have windows in it, so you can't look outside. So it's almost insular, almost looking inside, so that you have the ability. You don't see what's the land and what's around you. You only have the beauty and the majesty of being in the king's or the queen's, in this case, wheelhouse. And that's just, it's great storytelling on Martin's part to utilize to utilize that of, of the wheelhouse as in it being just kind of a closed system and being closed off from the rest of the world. Whereas Arya is out there getting muddy, getting dirty, uh, making friends with people that are outside of her social class. Um, and in this case, again, I, my, the criticisms that you make of Sansa are, are 
grounded and, and true. Um, it's 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 definitely true that that Sansa is is not looking at anything beyond the beautiful um, things that she sees, and you see that when she's meets up with Renly and Barristan in the chapter where she sees their armor and how handsome the armor of Sir Barristan and how handsome Renly is. And uh, what's intriguing about these two characters, as, as we find out, is that beauty and that nobility that they outwardly display can conceal terrorism, not terrorism, um, can conceal, uh, <laughs> sorry, just, I'm just going to, just keep taking shots. Uh, can conceal something that is not beautiful, that is ugly inside, or in the case of Renly, or in the case of Barristan, that conceals a bit of a moral cowardice as well, um, as we're going to find out throughout the, his arc uh, in, in Barristan's Dance with Dragons chapters. We get them get to them in a few years. Exactly right. No, I, that's an excellent point about the wheelhouse as being very representative of Sansa's worldview. Uh, you get the same thing, I would argue, at the Blackwater when she's stuck in Megro's Holdfast with Cersei. That's Cersei's bubble. Yep. That she's trying to maintain and keep the battle out. There's all those references in that chapter to, you know, the, how the, the laughter is forced because everyone's hearts and minds are on the wall with their men. So, like, the real world is bleeding in to that, you know, because at that point, Sansa's starting to become more aware of things. So the bubble, the bubble is bursting. You, mm-hmm. you can see that gradually happen with Sansa. Over the course of the series, you could argue the Eerie is another place like that, another kind of cloistered, oh, yeah. isolated, stage-like kind of uh, theatrical kind of setting for Sansa's, Sansa's growth. But yeah, great point about uh, Renly and Barrison and their armor. Let's get into that a little bit, because yeah. uh, this is, I think, um, a, v- a very key part of the chapter. Uh, so yeah, Sansa's walking around thinking about how much Arya sucks, um, and then... <laughs> You have these. Uh, there's this. There's, there's this big to do, and all these these three guys have suddenly showed up uh, at, at the wheelhouse. And so she comes through, and uh, quote: When she got closer, she saw two knights kneeling before the queen in armor so fine and gorgeous that it made her blink. Um, one knight. Uh, that's a great little line. It made her blink. Like that's yeah. how intense it was. She just had to suddenly just stop and look at, react, and see what she's looking at. Mm-hmm. Quote: One knight wore an intricate suit of white enameled scales, brilliant as a field of new fallen snow with silver chasings and clasps that glittered in the sun. When he removed his helm, Sansa saw that he was an old man with hair as pale as his armor, yet he seemed strong and graceful for all that. From his shoulders hung the pure white cloak of the Kingsguard. His companion was a man near twenty whose armor was steel plate of a deep forest green. He was the handsomest man Sansa had ever set eyes upon, tall and powerfully made, with jet-black hair that fell to his shoulders and framed a clean-shaven face, and laughing green eyes to match his armor. Cradled under one arm was an antlered helm, its magnificent rack shimmering in gold. Uh, so one small mistake to note there, laughing green eyes for Renly. That's not the case. Uh, his <laughs> eyes are always mentioned as blue later. All the yep. Baratheons' eyes were consistently mentioned as blue. Um, but it does, however, in th- purely in this moment work, because it fits the the point of describing Renly and Barristan this way, which is to overwhelm you with imagery. Like yes. this is This is, again, the song is coming to life for Sansa. Like the way the way their armor shines, the how how beautiful and impressive they are, just as as men, as human beings, and and this is what makes it not grimdark. That Martin understands the appeal; he mm-hmm. gets why this overwhelms Sansa. He 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 too has read the description of a suit of armor and a knight in a song, and go, oh how grand! You know, he he feels that, and he gets yeah. that across. You are supposed to go, whoa, when you realize that you can picture Renly and Barristan and 
I picture little anime like roses and sparkles all around <laughs> them. It's like it's 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 written that way. It's it's overwhelming. It's almost it's almost as imagery driven as some of the trippier brand chapters in its own way. It's yeah. taking place in reality, but for Sansa, that's what this feels like. But like you say, we're supposed to immediately look under the surface. You know, look look beyond the songs and see what the real meaning is, and you know that's the case because this is what happens right after that. Quote, at first Sansa did not notice the third stranger. He did not kneel with the others. He stood to one side, beside their horses, a gaunt, grim man who watched the proceedings in silence. His face was pockmarked and beardless, with deep-set eyes and hollow cheeks. Though he was not an old man, only a few wisps of hair remained to him, sprouting above his ears, but those he'd grown long as a woman's. His armor was iron-gray chainmail over layers of boiled leather, plain and unadorned, and it spoke of age and hard use. Above his right shoulder, the stained leather hilt of the blade strapped to his back was visible, a two-handed greatsword, too long to be worn at his side. <laughs> I just love how Martin does this. You, you set up Barrison, you set up Renly, you know, two in a row. They're, they're, they're gorgeous armor, how impressive they look as people. Again, characters out of the songs for Sansa, living up to their reputation. And then the third guy is Death. Literally <laughs> Death. That's who Elin Payne is. He's, he's this embodiment and symbolism of Death. He's consistently yes. framed that way throughout the series. This man lives for naught but kill him, the way Jamie describes him. Or, you know, the fact that he kills who it seems the protagonist at first, Ned Stark. Uh, he's, you know, associated with a person who's given up all in his life but execution. So he's, he's there to undercut that image of Renly and Barristan. To get you immediately, it's supposed to be jarring. You have these two beautiful images and then this third horrifying one to get you to think critically about those two beautiful images. What if the reality of Renly and Barristan looks more like Ilan Payne? What if you, if you break down their wealth and break down their easy self-presentation, what if this is more like who they really are? You know, with Renly with his arrogance, Barristan with his weakness, if you take away their reputation, are, there, are they any more than just a sad-eyed guy with a sword? And... Again, I'm quite certain this is the direction Martin intends us to be thinking, because as, Mar as, as Sansa backs away from Ilan Payne, this is what happens. Quote, strong hands grasped her by the shoulders, and for a moment Sansa thought it was her father. But when she turned, it was the burned face of Sandra Clegane looking down at her, his mouth twisted in a terrible mockery of a smile. You are shaking, girl, he said, his voice rasping. Do I frighten you so much? He did, and had <laughs> since she had first laid eyes on the ruin that fire had made of his face. You know, Sandor Clegane is a character right at the heart of these questions about songs and images and what you do when they fail you, about what the reality of knights and war and violence are like. This is something that Sandor says to Sansa over and over again over the next couple books. You know, I'm honest, it's the world that's awful. But, you know, you can tie a ribbon around a sword, but what a knight is for is killing. You know, he is speaking to this very idea that it doesn't matter how nicely Barristan dresses, his job is to kill people. Yes. It doesn't matter how charming Renly is. The only reason Renly has that armor is because rich nobles live off the fab, the land, and tax peasants for no reason. Like, you look critically at this, at, at the beauty around you and ask where it's coming from so you don't get surprised by the ugliness like Ilan Payne. It's not just that Ilan Payne is, is, is scary, it's that Sansa isn't able to deal with it and freaks out and can't react because that doesn't fit her worldview. Whereas Sandor understands all too well that sometimes the knights are the monsters. And that's yeah. something that he doesn't need. Something that he doesn't need to be taught because of the ruin that fire had made of his face. But Sansa's just being introduced to that world, so Renly and Barristan overwhelm her, and then and then and then you get the stinger. Then then you get the rub of Ilan Payne. You know what's uh, really fascinating about Sander 
uh, is, is how similar he is to Sansa in that Sander receives his burn face because he's playing with the toy knights of, of his brother, Sir Gregor Clegane, or I guess he wasn't Sir Gregor Clegane at the time. Sander had this fantasy expectation of what knights were like and the nobility of knights and idolized them, at least to the extent that he was playing with toy knights and, and, and utilizing them as, as a kid. And then he had that burned away from him literally by being having his face stuck into a fire. And that's it, it really seems fairly pretty similar to Sansa in that Sansa has this image of the beauty and the grandeur and seeing Renly and Barristan and then encountering then seeing Sir Ellen and then encountering Sandra Clegane later on and and getting his perspective. And the reality frightens Sansa similar to the way that the reality of, of what knights are and what knights do frightens and turns Sander into this noir anti-hero type figure that he becomes known for, at least for the first three books, before becoming something a bit more in book four. Yeah, I think it's absolutely important that Sandor is a disappointed idealist, that he once believed in the same dream Sansa has, and he had them ripped away in the most horrifying and trust-violating way imaginable. So, of course, he doesn't take Renly and Barristan's surface appeal at face value. Uh, of course, he sees through them to the ill and pain underneath, and, and Sansa, Sansa really does too. And unfortunately, she doesn't at this point. And uh, that's why she gets taken in so easily by the Lannisters. Uh, yep. You know, you have Renly and Barristan show up. Uh, Sansa, I like the little moment where Sansa deciphers who Renly is, just to show that she's not stupid. <laughs> that she has, she knows enough of politics and symbolism that she can figure out who somebody is. I think that's a nice little political thing that Sansa has. Um, yeah. As opposed to, like, Arya not recognizing Varys and Illyrio. I think that's just interesting that they move in their kind of little different worlds. But, so after they show up, uh, Cersei has to meet with them for a while, so she, she sends off Sansa with Joffrey. They can't have their day in the wheelhouse, they're going to have their day out on their own. Quote, it would be my pleasure, Mother, Joffrey said very formally. He took her by the arm and led her away from the wheelhouse, and Sansa's spirits took flight. A whole day with her prince, she gazed at Joffrey worshipfully. He was so gallant, she thought, the way he had rescued her from Sir Illyn and the Hound. Why, it was almost like the songs, like the time Servant of the Mirror Shield saved the Princess Daressa from the Giants, or Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight championing Queen Nerys' honor against evil Sir Morgul's slanders. Uh, I love this for a lot of reasons. Uh, first of all, it's, again, that song perspective. That's the filter Sansa's putting over everything. How are, they, how are these characters like the characters in the song? How is Joffrey like the men I've always worshipped and heard about? Um, and only when he lives up to that image does she really overwhelmed by it. Uh, I do love, but even even in this little chapter, there are these ironies that show that that's not a correct worldview, that that's not really how things are. Like, the fact that he, quote, rescued her from the Hound. When in, in Clash of Kings, you see that Joffrey is the one trying to hurt her and Sandor is the one trying to rescue her. Those positions uh, become reversed. Or you have uh, Aemon the Dragon Knight championing Queen Nerys's honor. Now, while I much prefer Aemon the Dragon Knight as a man to his brother Egan Forth the Unworthy, I'm of the opinion that Daron the Second might well have actually been Aemon the Dragon Knight's son. Interesting. So that he might have wrong. been. He might have been. <laughs> this is perfectly fair, but for the purposes of this chapter, I think it's interesting that one of the duels Sansa is talking about might have been for the wrong side. It might have been, you know, with justifiably given how yeah, 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 yeah. he was, no, you're right. it might have been. Yeah. It might have been fighting dishonestly. I think that's interesting that Sansa isn't. The point is that Sansa is not thinking about that. She's not thinking about the ambiguity of the songs about whether this is how it really is. 
all she's thinking about is how great they are and how uh, Joffrey is, is is living up to it and uh, living up to it so much that she doesn't even care. Like there's the funny moment you noted in your synopsis. Uh, Joffrey says we could go riding, and Sansa says, "Oh, I love riding," even though she just explained to Arya <laughs> at length how much she hates riding. But she'll do it if she means she gets to be with Joffrey. And I get right. why that irritates people because it's it's very moony and very teenagey. Uh, but it fits. It fits someone at that age and that social class that Sansa's not thinking about Joffrey as a person or what she wants to do with him. She just wants to be with him. Again, he is the reward. It's not what she wants to do with Joffrey. It's not like, I want Joffrey to have access to power so my kids can, as Catelyn says, rule from Dorne to the Wall. That's not what Sansa's thinking about. It's just him, in and of himself. He is the goal. So that when he, the image of him fades, it hits her all the harder. Yeah, and man, does it fade. Like, the the way that... It, oh, good lord. The way that Joffrey turns from noble prince... And, and you know, there's this... I don't know how to, how to phrase this in, in a way that's that would, that, that's sensitive to... Because it's kind of a sensitive topic. But the way that sure. it's it's made that Sansa... Like, he's basically pushing more and more alcohol on Sansa felt almost a bit... Date rapey, if that makes sense. Like here, drink more, drink more, drink more. You know, let your inhibitions go away. Yeah. Some people have said this, and I agree that maybe Joffrey was planning on taking advantage of her if they hadn't stumbled across Arya and Micah when they did. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Joffrey's sexuality is a topic that comes up both in universe and among the fandom about what he wants, how much he wants, and how much he really realizes it. But who knows? I mean, because yeah, there's the. Again, that, that that blurring line between the, the world of the songs and the harsh world of reality, where, like, getting drunk on summer wine is part of the glory of the day, and, you know, the great spring temperatures and art writing is romantic, but at the same time, you do notice that, yeah, he's, he's pushing the wine on her a lot. There's that there's a creepiness to it. Yeah. And I think that's a balance Martin pulls off really well, where he, he gets across how Sansa is feeling very intimately, while still at the same time showing you around the edges that this is not... This is not quite right, and that's what. And then, of course, it all gets away when they when they find Micah, and that's when that's when Joffrey really turns into a movie monster. And I think yes. it's interesting to come back to this book and try to read it with uh, clear eyes, because of course, Joffrey as monster is just an image that's burned in our collective pop cultural consciousness at some point. I think it's one of the most enduring legacies mm-hmm. of Game of Thrones. The TV show is just this image of Joffrey as the horrible brat. He's like replaced. I don't know, Damien from The Omen. I guess that's an old <laughs> reference, but like, I'm trying to think of who like the definitive pop culture evil child was. I guess Stewie from Family Guy, that's a little different evil genius kind of thing. Yeah. But anyway, Joffrey, Joffrey is like a trope in and of himself at this point. He's a meme. He's a pop culture artifact. And it's hard to strip that away and come back to when you first realize how bad he is, because that's this chapter. I mean, we've seen Joffrey be an asshole before. He was very imperious and arrogant in the Winterfell training yard, but it up to this point, he's just like a like a snot, maybe a bully, like maybe just looking at him, yeah, like a pretentious little little brat. He's not an outright, you know, sadistic maniac attacking people, and that's what he becomes in this chapter. Everything that we've seen so far with Joffrey really comes to the surface here. You know, you couldn't get a better POV for that than Sansa, a POV who has assumed that the surface matches what's underneath to realize that that's not the case and have that blow apart. She's the perfect POV to watch Joffrey fully unleashed. And as as we'll uh, get into a little later, there's, again, a strong class dynamic here. Like, you know, uh, Joffrey can only threaten Rob in the context of 
let's both have equal arms in this training yard. Like, that's how Joffrey can get in a position to attack Robert. From Micah, he doesn't have to have any of those niceties. He can just go straight up to him and just start hurting him. And there's no one to stop him. Rob, you know, Rob has protectors. Yeah. Micah does not. And Joff, ex- Joff explicitly evokes the, uh, the class structure. He says, quote, when he's attacking Micah, uh, and you're only a butcher's boy and no knight. Uh, that was my later lady sister you were hitting. Do you know that? So he's like saying, you shouldn't be dreaming so big, kid. How dare you even have pretend swords? How dare you even think of being a knight? Even that is dangerous to me. I have to stamp you down. He's, yeah, my lady's sister, as though he's protecting Arya's honor. Like, Joffrey gives a damn about Arya. He tries to kill her, like, seconds after this. But in this moment, he's pretending that he's protecting her honor, that he's living up the class structure of Westeros. That, he, you know, even though he doesn't like Arya, she's a noble, and the peasants shouldn't dare get into a, an equal sparring fight with a noble. That Joffrey deems this as, as a challenge and something he can respond to violently. Uh, and that he can, he, that he realizes he can do whatever he wants to with Micah. Um, there's rereading this scene with Micah, he's just tormenting him, and made me think of uh, this line from Lord of the Flies. Uh, there's the character in it, Roger, who's not the leader of the quote unquote bad kids, but he's kind of the, the scariest of them, uh, and the, the one who's most into kind of unleashing violence. And there's this quote: uh, "He ceased to work. He's building, like making a sphere. He ceased to work at his tooth, like a lion's tooth." And sat still, assimilating the possibilities of irresponsible authority. <laughs> and that's always just been such a chilling line, but man, does it apply to Joffrey. The possibilities of irresponsible authority are what he's indulging in here. That he just gets to do whatever he wants to this kid. And the reason is because of the social structure of Westeros. I mean, Micah is older than him. Even though it mentions that even though Joffrey calls him boy, Micah's older. Micah's stronger, <laughs> taller. Uh, in, in, in every respect, if this was just a Hobbesian world of, you know, man against man, everyone for themselves, Micah would destroy Joffrey. But it's not. The structure has been set up that Joffrey has a sword and Micah has a stick. And that, and Micah says he's only in this mess at all because of what a noble told him to do. She asked me to, my lord. I'm not holding Arya responsible for what Joffrey does to Micah, but it just shows that Micah's trapped. Even the good nobles end up putting him in this situation. Yeah. Like when, uh, Egg, well, like when Egg ran and got um, Dunk to fight Aryan Brightflame, to save Tansel Too Tall. Egg was doing a good thing, morally, in terms of trying to save this woman, but as uh, Baylor Breakspear says later, it was not a good thing to do to Dunk, because right. he, he screwed Dunk over by bringing him into that situation. And in the same way, Arya was being very wonderful and empathetic by wanting to train with this, this common boy and not seeing a, a division of class between them. But in the world that she lives in, she ended up getting him in huge trouble. So I, I think that's a really important part of this chapter, too, that it's not not just the evil nobles like Joffrey who are causing problems. It's even with even with the best of intentions within this system, nobles are screwing over peasants. You know, what's interesting too is that you know we we talked at length about how Sansa's fantasy expectations are subverted and and shattered a, a lot in this chapter, but Arya's are too. In that that Arya is looking at Micah as being a co-equal, right? She can play sticks yes. with Micah and tell Micah that they can, you know, hit each other, and that's fine. You know, even though that she's the daughter of Lord Eddard Stark, it's it's okay. And then Joffrey essentially shatters Arya's fantasy of there being a sense of equality among the people of Westeros because equality doesn't exist there. There is a feudal structure and feudal responsibilities, which we'll talk about at significant length towards the end of this podcast. And that structure 
basically works to oppress people and to put people in their place. Like a butcher's boy like Micah has to stand there meekly whilst Joffrey puts the point of his sword against his cheek on the evil side, like you said, but on the good side, good people like Arya, he has to also pick up a stick and fight Arya. And he, he probably, I would, I get the sense from this chapter that he was having a good time and enjoying himself. It wasn't like that Arya, that there was a compulsion involved in it, but there was a inherent almost compulsion, if you want to call it that, of that the, the kid had to do what Arya said because Arya is the daughter of the Lord of Winterfell and the Lord of the daughter of the Lord of Winterfell what she wants people have to do, even though the Arya is not necessarily conscious that that is the position that she's putting um, putting Micah into, for sure. Yeah, you see that with Gendry's relationship to Arya. When he finds out who she really is, he's terrified. Like, oh my god, I didn't mean to make jokes about my cock and be naked in front of you. you right. must, like, He's worried she's going to have him killed for that stuff because he knows what that means. And she doesn't. She's freaked out by his response. Yeah. And I think that's a great point that you make that this is actually one area where Sansa is less naive than Arya. That's, you know, and I, I think it's important to be careful talking about this. I'm not saying that the social structure of Westeros is a good thing, but yep. within that social structure, it's good to be aware of it. Does yes. that make sense? Like, it's, yes. it's important that Sansa knows these things just to keep her safe. And Ar- while well, we may go, like, yeah, Arya, you're right. You tell the Mer- that Cersei and Marcella that they don't know stuff. Like, you know, it's easy to cheer her on, but that's politically dangerous. It's yes. a politically dangerous way to behave. Like when Sansa can't believe that Arya would insult the queen, there's good reason for Sansa to be afraid of that. Like insulting especially a queen like Cersei, that's not something you get away with easily. So it's a tough balancing act where we have to we want to admire Arya but also understand that the system around her is not set up to reward her and I think that is hopefully designed to lead our critique towards that system and not to say that the problem is that Sansa's dumb or that Joffrey's evil or that's, you know, obviously Joffrey is evil, but that's not... The problem is that this social system has been set up to allow Joffrey to behave this way, and that no one has the authority to stop him, and that the people who do don't do anything. Right. And that's that's really, that's really I think, where you, where you see the critique land. And with Sansa, that just, she's just incapable of dealing with that. You get this great, great stinger at the very end. Sansa goes to Joffrey, and she's sobbing over him. Oh, look what they did, my poor prince. I'll, I'll go out, and I'll write to the Holdfast and bring help for you. Tenderly, she reached out and brushed back his soft blonde hair. And you know what Santa's imagining at this moment, right? That he's going to look up at her with love in his heart and think, and say, my lady, whatever would I do without you? And she'll <laughs> lean down for a tender kiss. Like, you know what she's picturing. But this is what happens. His eyes snapped open and looked at her, and there was nothing but loathing there. Nothing but the vilest contempt. Then go, he spit at her, and don't touch me. <laughs> Ooh, that makes you shiver. Yeah. Like, that, that's, a, that's a deconstructive nuke aimed at Sansa's worldview and thus the fantasy reader's worldview. It's more than, I mean, it's subverting expectations. Uh, everyone's favorite catchphrase on the internet, it's, it's subverting my expectations. <laughs> it means it's good. Uh, but obviously subverting expectations is not good in and of itself. Um, you know, it's, it's the, the, the point you make with it. And I, I love the point that Martin, I think, is making here is that ultimately the problem with Sansa's worldview is that it does not help her understand Joffrey. It has left her completely vulnerable to Joffrey. Yes. And it, she is unable to cope with the man he really is. Even after this, she still thinks of him as her perfect cherished prince and kind of blocks away what happens. She isn't able to cope. That's the problem with the fantasy worldview. I think that's the problem with the genre. I think that's the point Martin is, is, is trying to make in this chapter. 
Absolutely, man. That's fucking great. <laughs> you're sweet. You're sweet, Jeff. This is, this is why we why we keep each other around. That's why we that's why we why we do this thing. And and the billions of dollars we make from, you know, advertising. Patreon.com Patreon. forward slash not a cast <laughs> Absolutely. Um Well let's talk a little bit about more like some quickly go into some likes and dislikes about this chapter and then we're gonna go roll right on into Edward three. Because this these two chapters feed really well into each other. Absolutely, sir. So yeah, I've already touched at great length many of the things I uh, like about this chapter, but I want to specifically bring up uh, the imagery of it and the filter of Sansa's POV. You get this contrast of the way she worships Joffrey, compares him to the figures in the songs, uh, versus the, just the violence of what happened. Illyn staring at her Sanders face, Joffrey cutting into Micah. That's really... The vividness of that is what elevates this chapter, because you know, looking back at how we talked about it in the chapter as a whole, it could be very easy for this to come off as smug. Like, haha, Sansa, she does not get the things. Yeah. Like, you could so easily just reduce this chapter to just that. But the, the imagery is really what makes it work for me. The, the horror stands out because the language leading into it is so romantic. Uh, it's, it's not... You have to have the sense of something good going wrong for this chapter to work. And in order, in order to get that dramatic arc, you have to you have to you have to make you feel Sansa having a good day. It's her version of Ice Cube's "It Was a Good Day" until it goes. Hor- it's like if you interrupted that shot with interrupted that song with gunfire. Yes. that's what this chapter is for Sansa. Yes, uh, and I, I what I like is that Martin really does make you feel both, and that's something we'll get into a lot as we go through the series. That the only reason Martin's horror moments work well is because he makes you feel the loss of what's being destroyed. Hmm. Absolutely. And what uh, what do you like about the chapter, sir? As the noted Sansa Stark hater, canonically, despite your protest to the contrary, you're just never going to live it down, man. I, I never. I'm I was sorry. like, it's going to be like ten years from now. I'm going to be in my forties, and someone be like, <laughs> Ah, you're the guy that hates Sansa Stark, aren't you? Well, <laughs> it's, it's you make it sound like a western, like some young cowpoke's going to challenge you. I hear you are the man who hates Sansa Stark. He pushes his way into the saloon. Everyone goes silent. He's wearing a Sophie Turner t-shirt. <laughs> it's going to be great. Super awesome. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I really don't really have a whole lot to add besides everything that you've said is, is really kind of helps to um, augment my enjoyment of this chapter and, and rereading it again. Like I, I, like I said, I, I'm not a Sansa Stark hater. I, I actually really enjoyed this chapter quite a lot. And one of the things I really like about this chapter is how, it almost feels very much like a chapter, and Martin does this a lot in later books, but this chapter feels almost like a novella in that it's short, but it also has a complete arc in one chapter. And I think that's really good. And that arc is all about the deconstruction of Sansa's fantasy world in one fell swoop. You have chivalrous knights and princes, which then are contrasted against unchivalrous deeds and actions and words, as we uh, we, we talked about at significant length. But because I am the quote-unquote Sansa hater, I figure I'll start with my dislike for this chapter, and then you can roll right into it. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, it, this, I don't know if I would actually call this a dislike, but there's a moment which it, it makes me laugh, like, thinking about it, because I, um, I think of Joffrey doing this, and it, and it just has a, I have a weird <laughs> image in my mind of, um, uh, of Joffrey. <laughs> okay, I'll just, I'll just read the line. Uh, the line is hilarious and hilariously bad are both. And the line is, quote, they went slowly after they had eaten. Joffrey sang for her as they rode, his voice high and sweet and pure, unquote. 
And <laughs> yeah, that's a little off. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of funny. It's a weird mental image. Yeah. It is. It's just bizarre. Again, we have this image of Joffrey in our collective brains, and it's just not easy to reconcile that with someone singing, or especially someone singing high and sweet and pure. I'd believe Tommen doing that before Joffrey. I mean, can you imagine, like, Jack Gleason, like, singing high and sweet and pure as they're riding through? Like, no, you just can't, right? It's so weird. And that's one example of the difference between the media, uh, that in a show, you know, in a visual medium like a show or a movie, I think you have to control the tone so much more consistently. Yes. Uh, And, like, that would would break that scene. You would not be able to take Joffrey seriously. (laughs) Right. um, If he was doing that. And I agree, it's a little, it's a, that is one moment where the, the romantic imagery that Martin is setting up in order to be demolished later uh, does feel a little like, yeah, that is, it just, it's, that's not romantic, it just makes you tilt your head like a confused dog and go, <laughs> I mean, Joffrey I, won't. I mean, I guess like, uh, you know, I, I can, I can rationalize it this way, in that Joffrey is basically teenage version of Jeffrey, that is being me of pulling out the acoustic guitar and, you know, doing a little, doing a little oasis, a little semi-sonic, a little third eye blind, you know. Anyway, here's semi-charmed life. Yeah, I know, I know how you do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it does. It fits the themes and imagery of the chapter perfectly. It's just as a tonal thing, looking at it in isolation, it does, it doesn't, it, it, it makes a silly image in my mind instead yes. of like a wistful romantic image. So I, I definitely agree. That's one moment where it goes a little too over the line. Um, but it is fun to laugh at. Well, it is fun. Uh, to laugh at. What, what about you? What about your dislikes? My one dislike, and I didn't. I this is again something I didn't really put together before coming back for this reread. Uh, is that plot-wise, there's really no reason for <laughs> Renly, Barristan, and Ilan Payne to be there. Like they're, they're not bringing a message. Varys already sent the word about Danny in Ned's last chapter. They're not. They don't seem to be conspiring in their own regard. It's weird that Cersei is happy to see them. I mean, I guess she would have to fake it, but, like, what is she talking to Renly and Barristan about? Like, they're, yeah. they're in completely different camps. They're not co-conspirators. The Ellen Payne's not there to kill anybody. They, Robert doesn't need them for anything. There's no threat. Um, I mean, I get it. You know, there's so many characters of varying immediate significance to introduce in this first book. Sometimes the author just needs to spread them out. My, my guess is Renly, you know, Renly and Barristan and are here in part to help with Sansa's story, as we've discussed, in terms of the, the images and them being undercut. Uh, and I think I think they're here in large part, though, so that Martin doesn't have to introduce everybody at once when Ned gets to King's Landing. He spaces it out a little bit. He does these guys here. He does Varys and Littlefinger and Cats uh, next chapter. Yeah. He does Maester Pycelle when Ned gets there. Part of me thinks like Martin was writing his way through and was like, crap, I'm in a situation where I'm, I'm going to have to introduce 12 important characters in a paragraph. I don't want to do that. I'm going to have these guys spread out. And I think that's fine, but I, I I wish he'd come up with a motivation, anything. Maybe have them bring the message about Danny getting married or something. Because um, otherwise it does, in, in a series where Martin's usually pretty good about people having reasons to go where they're going, Renly, Barris, and Nolan Payne just show up in this chapter. So that is a little odd. Yeah, it is odd. But can you imagine, like, the backstory that goes into this, like... Renly and Barristan are there like, hey, let's go, let's go meet up with Robert and escort them back home. Like, who should we take? Fuck yeah, Sir Ellen. We'll take Sir Ellen Payne with us. Yeah, exactly. let's do it. it Road makes trip with no that sense. Good idea. There's no one there for Robert to kill. <laughs> right. Yeah, like w- w- when Jamie takes Ellen Payne, it's out of this kind of weird sense of camaraderie for him right. in a feast for crows when he takes Ellen. And also, I guess he needs like uh, someone he can talk to about secret stuff that won't tell anybody. 
But yeah, Renly and Barristan, like of all characters, you think like those would be the among the two people who would least want to... Renly especially. Imagine Renly and Ilan Payne sharing a room. That sounds like a bad sitcom. Um, and yeah, there's no one there to kill. There's no... And like, yeah, imagine Renly... Like, small council meeting, Renly and Barristan saying, yeah, we're going to go up and meet Ned. Meet Ned and Robert. And Barristan and Littlefinger go, well, why? And they just go, I don't know. Just cuz. <laughs> feel like it. Um... You could maybe say that it's a commentary on the unrealism of the song Santa listens to where characters just end up where they're going, but that's kind of a stretch. I think it's more just that, like I said, Martin wanted to introduce them here for a variety of reasons and yeah. was not particularly worried about the plot logic of it. There are worse sins, but it did stand out to me on Ruby. It sure did. So yeah, that was a Game of Thrones Sansa 1. I think that that was a pretty freaking great discussion, but I'll leave that to our loyal listeners to... Let us know for, for sure, because it was, but it was, totally. Um, but because uh, we've been gone for so long, we are going to do the next chapter in the Game of Thrones, and that is Edward 3. And th- there's, a, there's a solid reason for this. Edward 3, essentially, it, it picks up from Sansa 1 almost immediately after. Um, in, in terms of the, uh, the, the timing of it, I think it takes place four days after Sansa won, but the thematically it's essentially flows right into it. So this is a Game of Thrones Edder 3. Arya has been found after four days of searching. Fortunately, she was found by Jory Cassell and not by Lannister men. Unfortunately, as soon as Jory and Arya had arrived at the gate of Castle of Castle Derry, Queen Cersei had been told and Arya had been apprehended and brought in front of her and Robert. Ned makes his way to, Derry, to the Derry audience chamber, seeing, hearing, and sensing the thoughts of the people around him. And those thoughts are not necessarily positive. As Ned walks through the castle courtyard, he thinks of House Derry and how, that, and how House Derry had not welcomed the party. You see, the Derrys had fought for the Targaryens during Robert's Rebellion, and though they had been welcomed back into the king's peace after the war, the Derrys had lost three sons in the rebellion. When Ned arrives back in the audience chamber, he finds Robert, Cersei, and Joffrey at the high table. Joff still has bandages over his arm. He sees Arya standing in front of them, and he rushes over to her. Arya says that she's sorry to Ned over and over again, and then Ned tells her that he knows. He then asks Robert, what is the meaning of this? Unfortunately for Ned, he hopes that he can find some friends there, but most of the faces in the room are hostile to him. It's mostly Lannister men, unfortunately, along with Sir Raymond Derry, Sir Barristan, and Lord Renly. Why was I not told that my daughter had been found, Ned demands. Why was she not brought to me at once? Cersei accosts Ned. How dare you speak to the king in that manner? Robert tells Cersei to shut up and that Arya was brought to her to get the business done with quickly. What business is that? Cersei answers. The girl of yours attacked my son, her and her butcher's boy. That animal of hers tried to tear his arm off. Arya calls Cersei a liar. Nightmare just bitch off a little. Besides, the prince was hurting Micah. Arguments ensue. Accusations and counter-accusations are thrown about until Robert shouts, ENOUGH! He then has Arya tell her story. At the end of the story, Renly begins laughing, and Robert orders Sir Barristan to escort Renly from the room. With Renly gone, finally, good God, that man, he needs to get gone quickly. Joffrey tells his side of the story. It's vastly different from Arya's version. Then Sansa arrives, and Ned asks his his eldest daughter to recount what she remembers. I don't remember. Everything happened so fast. I didn't see. Arya shrieks, you rotten, and attempts to attack Sansa. She knocks Sansa to the ground and begins pummeling her, calling her liar over and over again. 
Ned tells Arya to stop, and Jory Cassell pulls Arya off Sansa. Cersei says that Arya's as wild as her dire wolf. Yeah, she's a little bit right about that, I regret to say. Cersei is actually right in this case. But Cersei also wants Arya punished. Robert refuses. Cersei calls attention to Joff's scars, stating that Joff will carry his scars for the rest of his life. Robert replies, So he will. Perhaps they will teach him a lesson. Robert orders Ned to discipline his daughter. He'll discipline his son. Ned is relieved until Cersei brings up the direwolf. Nymeria is gone, but Sansa's direwolf lady is still around. Robert orders Sir Ellen to take care of the wolf. Ned is aghast. Robert, you cannot mean this. But the king will brook no argument. Sansa and Arya plead with their father, but Ned can do nothing but hold his children. He pleads one last time, though. Please, Robert, for the love you bear me, for the love you bore my sister, please. Damn you, Cersei, Robert says with loathing. Ned then tells Robert to do it himself, to have the courage of a Northman. But Robert says nothing and walks away, his steps heavy. With Robert gone, Cersei asks where Lady is. Barrison tells Cersei that the direwolf is chained against the gatehouse. Cersei begins ordering Sir Ellen to do the deed, but Ned stops her. If it must be done, I will do it. Cersei thinks it's a trick, but Ned replies that Lady is of the North. She deserves more than a butcher. Ned leaves the audience chamber and goes to Lady, sits beside her for a while, saying that saying her name, tasting her name, observing the direwolf and how well Sansa named her direwolf, who ruffles her fur and kills Lady. He then orders the body to be taken to Winterfell to be buried. As Ned walks back to the tower, he sees Sander Clegane and his riders coming through the gate. Sander tells Ned that they hadn't found his daughter, but the day wasn't a total waste. The hound pushes a bundle off the back of his horse. Micah, the butcher's boy and Arya's friend. You rode him down, Ned says. He ran, the hound replies, laughing, but not very fast. And that is the horrifying end to a pretty freaking horrifying chapter, if I do say so myself. Yeah, great, great summary as always. Thank um, you. Since since I'm much I'm much more a Sansa fan and you're much more the Ned <laughs> fan, I rambled my head off of that last chapter. I'm going to let you take the lead on this one. You got it. Um, but I, I wanted to say that I agree that uh, these two chapters go well together, not just because Ned 3 follows on Sansa 1's heels, plot-wise, but because... It feels like one big fall from grace for the Stark family, that both Sansa and Ned are losing their illusions and seeing their dreams stripped away and replaced by these very harsh and bloody violent realities. Uh, from different perspectives, Sansa is very much of the younger generation, that her, the basis that she's drawing from the foundation that she's losing is fictional, built in songs and stories, whereas Ned, the foundation that's under attack is his past and his relationship with Robert and the, the crown they fought for and him seeing that kind of decay. Uh, but it's it's... It's, it, they're linked. They're linked together perfectly, and I think you get the the great context of this chapter. Uh, these are the first chapters set in the Riverlands. Sansa went in Ned Three. They're specifically at the castle of House Derry. And quote: They were not welcome visitors. Sir Raymond lived under the king's peace, but his family had fought beneath Rhaegar's dragon banners at the Trident, and his three older brothers had died there. A truth neither Robert nor Sir Raymond had forgotten. With Kingsmen, Derrymen, Lannistermen, and Starkmen all crammed into a castle far too small for them. Tensions burn hot and heavy. Yeah. So that's a nice nice bit of world building on its own merits, but it also connects perfectly to what I was talking about there, Ned's fall from grace and disillusionment regarding Robert, because you have this reminder of Robert's rebellion and of House Targaryen and of the war that Robert fought and how that legacy has lingered. 
And that's important because Ned is beginning to see that it, uh, it was fought for nothing in some respects because of how Robert has turned out as a king. Yeah. Um, or not for nothing, but that Robert, as I've said before, that Ned was fighting for different values than Robert was and is beginning to realize that. Yeah. Especially as Robert starts to fail as king in this chapter. So you have the sense almost of you have the Targaryen loyalists present and you have Ned losing his counter argument against them. As he will say later in the book, you know, what did we rise against Aerys Targaryen for if not to put an end to the murder of children? And while a child is in a child does get murdered in this chapter, and Lady as well representing innocence and kind of childhood for Sansa, so you see Ned is watching Robert kind of fail those values, and the, having the Targaryen loyalists around them only kind of adds a very kind of sad uh, historical context to it. Yeah, you're 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 absolutely right about that. It, you know the the first three Ned chapters, it, it, Ned's conception of Robert is being deconstructed. In the first chapter, we get. Ned seeing that Robert has put on a whole lot of weight, has multiple chins, and is just breathing heavy even though he's walking downstairs. In Ned's second chapter, you see Robert's mentality and being, I will kill every Targaryen I, I, every Targaryen I can get my hands on. Um, you see Ned is a bit aghast at his friend and seeing how the kingship has treated him. And then in the third chapter, when you get Robert actually issuing out decrees and orders as the king it's again ned's con fantasy conception of robert being muscled like a maiden's fantasy as he says in his first chapter it's it's gone you know they had rose up against Ares targaryen and his injustice in the way that he killed innocence and he uh, misruled the kingdom all that is being replaced by someone who is also misruling Westeros and not doing good by Westeros and specifically not doing good by House Stark either. Um, you know, Ned wonders in the second chapter before this chapter whether he had made a mistake in coming south. And, you know, he probably had made something of a mistake in, in coming south. And he it, it's almost his chickens are coming home to roost here where he sees the loss of, of life of, of Lady. He sees that Robert is surrounded by people who don't have Robert's best interests in mind and don't have the and don't have the realm's best interests in mind and as as well. And you know there's there's a lot of tragedy in Robert as a character and that Robert again he looked every bit the part of the king as he was coming up as being a king and then you see what he actually is like as a king 15 years after Robert's rebellion and he's not a good king. It's really it's 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 tragic for for Ned uh, to see his best friend and the way that he's become and the way that he rules and that's something that Ned is going to be consistently confronting throughout the Game of Thrones is that Robert is not a good ruler that Robert is doing wrong by the realm and Robert does wrong by House Stark here in this chapter and that ties directly into what we were talking about with Sansa like you say Robert started off looking the part of the king just like Joffrey and Jaime look the part of the king. But what both Sansa and Ned have to realize is that that is ultimately a superficial conclusion, and what makes you a king is, is how you act. That's something, again, uh, to bring up Stannis as we are wont to do, uh, that's something that he realizes over the course of A Storm of Swords, that you know he was focused on his rights, but what he needs to focus on are, is his duty, right. and that's something that uh, Robert has failed to do. And it's not... You know, it's not that Robert is like Eris himself, it's that he's allowing Cersei, who is consistently compared to Eris free reign, that he's not stopping her. And that's what really gets to Ned here. It's not like Robert is strangling Lady with his bare hands. Right. 
It's that Robert doesn't care that that's what Cersei wants to do. That's what really hurts for Ned. It's not even that Robert's gone evil. It's that Robert is not a protector. He's not a protector of the realm. He's stepping out of the way while this is happening. And you can, I think you can see that uh, Robert has this very almost childlike conception of what his job is, linking back to what we were saying in Ned 2 about Robert being stuck in his past. I love the line he says to Arya, and Mark Eddy does a great job with it in the show, it is a great crime to lie to a king. <laughs> like, that's, I mean, that's a fairly, you know, accurate understanding of, of how, what his position is, but it's so, so childish. It's like, you know, it's something you wag your finger until you can't, no, don't you lie, you know, it's, it, there's no sophistication, there's no kind of understanding of politics that's, that's, it's, there's the king is the person you're not supposed to lie to because that's bad. Right. Um, and he, he just, there's no, there's, there's nothing deeper there. Oh, yeah. There's no ideology. And again, with Stannis, although it leads into some pretty terrible places, Stannis has a reason to be king. Like he has things he wants to do. He has changes he wants to make. He has a platform. Right. Uh, whereas with Robert and later with uh, Renly, who is, of course, young Robert in many respects, there's there's just nothing there. There's there's just there's just the appearance, and Sansa is coming to realize in her own right that the appearance isn't enough, and now Ned is realizing that that's all Robert has. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it, that's a great point. I mean, the the fact that Renly is very much like Robert and and wants the appearance of the king, and it, he thinks he's the best king. And as we talked about in Sansa's last chapter, he looks very much he looks very much like the part of the king. He's handsome. He's adorned in beautiful wonderful armor and he's handsome and these are the things that robert was robert had was six foot six and had his antlered helm which made him look like a veritable giant i think is the way that ned describes him in the past and you see that man now and it's he's not there and, and something that just strikes me too is is how how in this chapter robert has the audience in front of hundreds of people so he's He's not just misruling, but he's also, he just doesn't care enough to be like, you know, maybe something like this should be handled in a private chamber away from the eyes of hundreds of people so that Cersei can't manipulate the situation to her advantage. These are, these are things that you, when you look at it, you're like, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of things that are off, that's, that's off about this. Even the, the choice of, where this chapter takes place in an audience hall. This isn't a this isn't a thing for audience. You know, it's something you know that I, I found in, in my own professional experiences in that you don't deal out punishments and you don't do discipline in a public setting. I mean, unless you really want to make an example of someone, but I don't see why you would want to make an example of Arya in this case. I mean, I guess like the prince was damaged, so to speak. Um, and by, by Arya and her dire wolf. But at the same time, it's also the daughter of the Hand of the King. Like, you have the ability to really set your relationship off before you even make it to King's Landing on an extremely bad footing. But Robert doesn't care enough to realize the optics are just totally wrong and totally bad. And then the decisions he makes in that framework of being in the audience hall are wrong, and they're really bad. And not just the decisions that he makes, the indecisions that he makes. He can't even bring himself to give the order. He just says, just make it happen sort of thing. He doesn't have the courage to do anything besides the bare minimum and not even the bare minimum. He fails at the bare minimum of being a king in this chapter. And I think that so, comes across really, really strongly in so many ways in this chapter, not just 
the decisions or the indecisions that he makes, but the the optics of it, the framework, how he addresses his wife, how he addresses his son, even, you know, he he mocks his son in front of the court. I mean, I, I know that Joffrey's a piece of shit and he's awful and he's terrible, but at the same time, you don't tell the crown prince you don't make fun of him and make him look like an idiot in front of the entire realm. It's just, it shows Robert at his worst. And unfortunately that's a part of Robert that we're going to see throughout a game of Thrones. hundred percent. Correct. I hadn't thought about it before, but you're right. Ned even brings it up. He says too crowded. He thought left alone. He and Robert might've been able to settle, settle the matter amicably. Uh, but you can tell Robert's not really thinking about it. And the very next line is Robert was slumped in Derry's high seat at the far end of the room, his face closed and sullen slumped, clothes, sullen. This is not a man who's engaged with his job. This is not a man who cares what's happening around him. This is just a man who wants this to be over with so Cersei will stop yelling at him. Yes. Like, there's the, the great line from Cersei that Robert always wanted to be surrounded by smiles. And, like, obviously that's better than Cersei, who likes being surrounded by screams, <laughs> but... Or Joffrey. But the problem is, is that Robert doesn't care why people are smiling. He doesn't care if they're faking it. He doesn't care if they're being fed. He doesn't care if their voices are heard. He just wants people to be smiling around him. Right. It's fake. It's superficial. And the same is true of Renly. It doesn't, as Stannis will complain, Renly could piss in a cup. Robert could piss in a cup and men would call it wine. But Stannis just gives them cold, clear water and they can't take that. You know, Robert just wants to feel good without doing good. Right. Uh, which is what makes him different from Ned, who needs to, uh, needs to do good in order to feel good. Uh, Robert doesn't have that kind of that kind of moral spine. He just wants he just wants Cersei to leave him alone, and you can you, you definitely see that in this chapter. He just he just wants out of the room, and I think Ned's right that if he got him alone, he could pull it off. Robert's instinct uh, is to say, "Quote Cersei, look at her. She's a child. What would you have me do? Whip her through the streets? Damn it, children, fight. It's over. No lasting harm was done." So I mean, that's you can see. Something that Martin always comes back to is the issue of mercy, specifically mercy towards children, and that Robert's instinct here is to have mercy because Arya's just a little kid, which, of course, he won't won't find that same mercy for Danny later in the book. So you see this chapter kind of raising themes and issues that will come up later between Ned and Robert. But that's his instinct. It's only... And he Robert does pull that off in terms of saving Arya from harm, but when Cersei keeps going, Robert surrenders. When it comes to, when it comes to the dire wolf... Uh, Robert gives in, um, and he uh, he he just kind of covers for. It. He tells Ned, "Sooner or later, I would have turned on your girl the same the other did on my son." And uh, quote, "Get her a dog; she'll be happier for it." Which again is a nice little Sansa Sandor <laughs> nod there. Uh, get her a dog like the Hound. Ned just watches him step aside. Yeah, uh, and I think that's really that's a, that's a really painful thing for Ned to witness. Having witnessed Ned, having witnessed Robert be okay with the murder of Rhaegar's children. And as we've said, they only came back together after that because of Lyanna. And then knowing that Ned would step aside when it came to Jon too, which I'm sure Ned is thinking about that, that Robert oh, would yeah. behave this way about Jon Snow. Uh, yeah, this is a huge disillusionment moment for Ned when he, he sees the, 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 the king he fought for and believed in is, is unworthy of the job. Again, this uh, king protects his people or he is no king at all. Right. And uh, by that definition, Robert ain't much of a king. He isn't. He really isn't. He really abdicates his responsibility in this chapter and, again, throughout the Game of Thrones, as, as we're going to f come to find out. Um, there, there is also another part of Robert that kind of is disturbing when you think about it in, in retrospect. And uh, it, it's, it's a moment that you think is a, a moment where the attention is alleviated, that 
things are going to be okay. And that is where Robert says to Ned, Ned, see that your daughter is disciplined. I will do the same with my son. You think at that moment that things are about to be okay, but they're not, of course, because the dire wolf, then Cersei says that, you know, my son will have these wounds forever, these scars forever, and then demands the, the head of the dire wolf and the death of, of, of Lady. Um, but getting back to that thing about the discipline, there's something that's a bit insidious about this, and that is that oftentimes abuse is concealed in the concept of discipline. And this is speaking personally on, on this podcast, because I figure I can talk with you guys about anything. This is something that, you know, I've, I've experienced in my own life where abuse in my own upbringing was concealed in this concept of, of, of discipline. And, you know, when Robert talks about disciplining his son, I think that we as readers and being re-readers, we need to go back and think about what Stannis said about Joffrey and about Robert's quote-unquote discipline. And this comes from A Storm of Swords, uh, Davos 5, where Sansa is remembering what happened with Joffrey at one point, And it's, quote, Joffrey, I remember once, this kitchen cat. The cooks were, were wont to feed her scraps and fish heads. One told the boy that she had kittens in her belly, thinking he might want one. Joffrey opened up the poor thing with a dagger to see if it were true. When he found the kittens, he brought them to show his father. Robert hit the boy so hard, I thought he'd killed him. Unquote. Now, in this context, it's very clear that this is talking about Joffrey's psychopathic tendencies, as they talk about serial killers oftentimes exhibit um, cruelty towards animals, and that seems, tends to be a, a psychological marker for people later on to be describe someone who eventually progresses into serial killing and other types of abuse. At the same time, Robert hits the boy so hard he thought that Stannis thought that the boy was, that Joffrey had died. I mean, that's the type of discipline that Robert is maybe talking about here. I can't speak specifically to the, what whatever happened in this chapter, after this chapter with Robert and Joffrey, but it was very likely to be physical abuse, um, physically abusive, and it's concealed in this idea of we'll discipline our children type of thing. For Ned, you can imagine that Ned would have a stern talking to with Arya and would, you know, tell her that he loves her at the end of things. With Robert, you can't imagine Robert saying that he loves Joffrey at any point in the narrative. It would be Joffrey beating the shit out of his son and then that being the discipline that Robert has in mind for his son. And that's kind of something that you should be thinking about when you're doing this reread of comparing and contrasting different passages from the, from the books and being like, you know, this isn't necessarily a, a, a good thing that this is, that there are things that we should be aware of, especially things that like in, in Robert and Joffrey's relationship, that is definitely, definitely abusive. Yeah. Just because, the fact that Joffrey is a sadistic little shit doesn't mean that hitting him is the solution. Right. I mean, we saw that with Tyrion, too. I mean, not Tyrion, too, the chapter. Tyrion as well, uh, in his first chapter, when he slapped Joffrey. Like, yeah, that might be cathartic for the moment, but it doesn't change anything. Right. It doesn't change Joffrey's behavior. It doesn't alter anything he's done. It doesn't mean he's not going to do it again. Robert didn't raise Joffrey. Like, yeah, he was rightfully horrified at what Joffrey did, but just punching him and moving on with your day? You think that's going to stop Joffrey from killing the next cat? I mean, I do, I do love, I didn't think of this until I, I was, you were just reading that chapter, but what a creepy contrast that is to the direwolf scene, like the starkling symbol on the direwolf mother who's dead and she's already dead and she's given birth and they take the pups away, but Joffrey actively killed a mother animal to get out the pups. Yep. 
And then, of course, they were presumably dead as well. Yep. Uh, so it's a, a very strong contrast between uh, Joffrey and the Stark kids. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, it, it shows how Robert is is only acting at the surface. And we, we, we might like it because he, we don't like Joffrey, but it doesn't actually uh, make any substantive change. Uh, it's, again, very surface. We keep going back to these same things. Same with Renly. Like, I've, I've seen a lot of people who say they, they started liking Renly and got into him as a character because he, he taunts Joffrey here and he rightfully punctures Joffrey's ridiculous story and self-image by saying, you gotta tell me how a little girl like a drowned rat took your sword away from you and mocks lion's tooth. And I get that, but <laughs> it's again, it's not doing anything. Like, Renly's dropping these jokes in the middle of this tense, heavy situation. Children are sobbing. The prince was wounded. Cersei wants the kid to hurt. Like, it's, it's, it shows that Renly doesn't care. He's not invested. He's, he's, he's behaving very shallowly. You get the same, see the same thing when, he, when you get to ordering Danny's execution. Renly orders it with no sense of the gravitas. Even Pycelle, as, as venal and reprehensible a human being as you'll meet, even he understands that the order to kill Danny is a serious one. Uh, yeah. One worth, he supports it, but he says, I understand this is bad. I think it's for the greater good, but yeah, I get that this is weighing on you. Renly has no such compunctions. Because Renly, Renly's just the smile. Renly's just the laughing eyes. That's all he is. So he just walks away, just like the young Robert would, would walk away, just like Robert isn't uh, actually solving the problems with Joffrey now. As, as, as compared to Stannis, who I think it's interesting that he, he says, he calls the cat a poor thing. I think it's interesting that both that cat and Proudwing animals seem to kind of bring out the mercy in Stannis that he so often represses, the kind of the <laughs> kinder side of him, I think often seems to come out around animals, which I think is interesting. Yeah, never noticed that. You know, uh, Stannis is in so many ways a contrast to Robert and Renly. Um, and I think you see an interesting example of that here. Uh, something I brought up before is that I think the Ned-Robert relationship paral parallels and contrasts the Stannis-Davos relationship in a lot of interesting ways. And uh, specifically the way Ned please, uh, please with Robert about Lady's life here. He says, uh, please, Robert, for the love you bear me, for the love you bore my sister, please. So he's uh, invoking their shared past together, their shared bonds, their, you know, what they owe to each other. Uh, and, and Davos, in, in the name of mercy, and Davos will do the exact same thing in A Storm of Swords, when he uh, sends off Edric Storm, and Stannis is preparing to kill him for that. And, and Davos says, hear me first uh, for, the, for the onions I brought and the fingers you took. You know, again, same thing, invoking that past to, in, in the name of listening to a, a, a plea of mercy. What ultimately makes this different, of course, is that Stannis listens. Right. And, and Robert, in this case, does not. I think that's one case where he shows Stannis actually is the one with the true steel. Yes. Um, but I think it's interesting already early in the book, you're starting to see these interesting connections between the Baratheon brothers. We haven't seen Stannis yet, but we're meeting Renly, and we're starting to, we're starting to see how these problems are kind of rippling out. But I agree with you completely about abuse and discipline and the, the area where one becomes the other. I think you see that come up in the series. I always think of like a full metal jacket with uh, the recently departed R. R. Lee Ernie, uh, uh, quote unquote, disciplining Private Pyle um, in the name of getting him to, you know, find himself and be a good Marine. But the, the, the consistency of the abuse and the way he turns his own other privates against him ends up just breaking him as a person. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I think you definitely see that with Robert and Joffrey, whereas, you know, yeah, again, we hate Joffrey, we're, we're inclined to hate Joffrey, but we're also supposed to understand that Robert is, if anything, making it worse. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So this, this chapter though, um, 
it ends on two huge downers, and that is um, Ned having to kill Lady, um, and then of course getting a little bit of justice. I I don't even know if you want to call it justice. A little bit of revenge, maybe in in sending Lady's bones back up to um, to Winterfell, so that she, that the uh, the direwolf is buried at Winterfell instead of worn as a cloak or taken as a cloak by by Cersei. Um, but then it also ends with. The death of Micah, or the re- the revelation that Micah has been killed by by the Hound, and that's just a, uh, it's just man, it just it just punches you like right in the gut, right? It's like a one two punch if you lose Lady, and then you this innocent kid is then killed, or is revealed to be have been killed immediately after, and it's just a brutal payoff, especially and especially too when you consider the wolf's name. Yeah, I mean, again, this is why we took Sansa one and Edward three together. It's it all it all kind of comes together at the end. It's, you know the the allure of, of the songs and of chivalric romance and the kind of bitter realities you're left with and how the songs didn't prepare you for it. You have Sansa with this idea of lady in her head. You know that's why she names her wolf that. As Ned notes, Sansa named her right. She's she's gentle as a queen, as Sansa says when she takes the bacon from her hand. She's, <laughs> she embodies all the elegance and grace and loveliness that Sansa thinks a lady is, and that's what she thinks Cersei is. You know, the, this perfect, beautiful, gracious queen that she wants to be like and spend all day with. San- Cersei is that lady that Sansa wants to be. And now you have Cersei ordering the death of Lady. Right. Like, how how, how symbolically apt is that? That uh, the woman Sansa thinks of embodying that concept is the one who tears that concept down. Yeah. And that fits Cersei's character so well, too. I mean, Cersei is driven by her internalized misogyny and her hatred of her own body and of other women and her whole gender and the way she's trapped by it in her, in her mind. <laughs> uh, so of course, it, of course she kills Sansa's dreams. Of course she kills the lady because as, as we'll get to much later in Clash of Kings, Cersei kind of thinks of Sansa as like a younger version of herself that she needs to give harsh truths to uh, in the worst way possible. Uh, so you can see that beginning here with Sansa kind of, Cersei kind of symbolically ordering the death of Sansa's innocence. That's really kind of what Cersei is, is doing here. Yeah. Um, and then and then you get the, like you said, the the added layer to that then of Micah. So then our, of so of Arya's dreams being shattered along with Sansa's, and of the character doing it is Sandor, the the disillusioned idealist, the character who did believe in dreams and songs and had that taken away from him. He is the one delivering that killing blow. So again, you see this generational theme. Like these characters, Cersei and Sandor, who, you know, used to believe and used to have fairy tales and pictures all over their walls, and Cersei dreamed of Rhaegar and Sandor dreamed of knighthood, and now they're in the position of killing innocents. Right. And ordering the death of innocents who specifically embody those dreams for the next generation. Um, so it's it's really, it's, it's really brutal, but I think it's, to address a persistent critique of the series, I don't think it's just brutal for the sake of brutality. You really see the link to these themes and these these changes the characters are going through and the disillusion that they're facing expressed with the horrifying violence. So yeah, it is when when you see Micah's body, it does just stop your heart. Um, but it's this, and this may sound bad. It's dramatically satisfying. Yes, it makes in in context the fact that he's dead and Sandor is the one that killed him. It's just, it's just perfect thematic storytelling. Absolutely. I think you're 100% on the ball on this one. So um, let's talk a little bit about some of our more general likes and dislikes, and then we have some theorizing and some uh, more discussion uh, thereafter. So what did you like about this chapter? Well, something I've kind of touched on, but I'll uh, get into more length here, is I like how this scene... 
like reverberates across time. Martin does a really good job of, as we've said, folding backstory into the present day and of foreshadowing the future. Uh, and you really see that in this, in this chapter, like like what this means for Ned in terms of the, of what's coming for him and what he's already been through. Like this is the same kind of scene that happened at King's Landing after the sack that. You, the Lannister men killing the Targaryen children to Ned's horror and Robert's kind of just shrug. And the same thing is now happening here. You have the, the Lannisters ordering the death of innocence to Ned's horror and Robert's shrug. Uh, and you have the same thing in the future where uh, you'll have Robert demanding Danny's death, uh, like betraying the protecting of the innocents just like he's doing here. And you have, in both cases, you have Renly chuckling in the background, kind of acting as the young Robert who's not doing anything as... um. Uh, I love when Robert says on his, his deathbed to Ned, no one to tell me no but you. And he includes Renly as the li- in the list of people <laughs> who would never tell him no. Uh, so that's, you know, in both cases, Renly's just encouraging Robert with instincts. Um, and then you have this great quote right before Robert leaves the room of Robert's, Robert's eyes are described as, quote, flat dead eyes. So alluding to Robert's death later in the book and how he will... Just like he does in this chapter, he will leave Ned alone in the Lannister's clutches. So that's something I really love about this chapter is the way it, uh, it it's, it's this, like this perfect uh, flashpoint to, yeah. to go full DC Comics, uh, where, you, where you see the past and the future kind of coming together. It's like this is, it's this perfect sense of, oh, this is what's, this is what's become of Ned and Robert and where they're going. I really do love that sense. On the flip side of that is, as, as well as this scene works in context with the character arcs, uh, it's it actually I was thinking about it, it really doesn't make a difference to the plot. It doesn't make a huge impact on the Game of Thrones and King's Landing. What what brings Ned inexorably into conflict with the Lannisters is his follow up on John Arryn's investigation, a uh, little fra- little finger framing Tyrion for the cat's paw and his dagger, and as Varys notes, Ned's personal loyalty to Robert. Uh, Cersei at, uh, at one point offers to Ned, you know, you can join in our coup and and fuck me if you want, and you know. You, you can take part in this this uh, treason you've discovered, and Ned refuses because he's personally loyal to Robert. So that's those are the things that bring them into conflict. Yeah, uh, Ned versus the Lannisters. None of that. The seeds for all of that is already set up, and none of it is changed by what happens in this chapter. You know, Ned already hates the Lannisters. He's already set out to investigate them. He doesn't do anything differently because of this. Uh, neither does Sansa. Like Cersei orders Lady killed, but Sansa still goes to Cersei later in the book with the information about that Ned is sending them both away. So. Plot-wise, the only real impact of this chapter is that the Stark sisters are now without their wolves. Lady is dead and Nymeria is gone. And that has a huge impact on what can happen to them later in the series. Yeah. So part of me feels like Martin came up with this set piece and said, okay, I need to get the Stark sisters' wolves out of there or things can't happen to Sansa and Arya the way I want them to. But it didn't really link up with what goes on in King's Landing. If you just zoom out and look at the plot... You, you could go right from Winterfell to King's Landing and everything Ned did and why would pretty much be the same. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And it's, um, I, I feel like the show did a little bit of course correcting here in that they did ha- invent a scene between Sansa, well, they invented two scenes, one between Cersei and Joffrey in which Cersei gives Joffrey a little bit of instruction on how to like woo Sansa and bring her back into the good graces uh, of of House Lannister, and then they have a second follow-on scene where uh, Joffrey gives Sansa a necklace, if I'm, if I'm remembering the scene correctly, and that does right. kind of bridge the gap between Sansa 
seeing the horror of, that Joffrey does and see what ha- seeing that Cersei orders the death of Lady and then later on um, betrays, well, informs on her father. Let's not use the word betray because betray is a, has some connotations in it. Um, it. Let's Cersei know about her father's plans and that, that has an impact on it. So I do think that there's a bit of course correcting done in the show that I think works better than the motif offered here. So I think your dislike is perfect. I don't have really anything to add on that one. Um, for my like for... Th- well, solid, but what... Go ahead. Yeah, what'd you like about the chapter? No, no. As the no. Ned fan in the room. Well, I'm... Uh, uh, Ned's a great character, don't get me wrong. But I would not call myself... Well, I, would, I, I guess I'm a Ned fan. That's fine. I'll take it. I'll wear There it. you go. He, he tried to dispute it, folks, but he couldn't make it. I can't. I just can't do it. <laughs> I do I do love Ned. Nor should you. Yeah. Yeah. Ned's chapters are great. I just love them. Um, my like for this chapter is pretty... Uh, Pretty self-explanatory, if you couldn't even already tell from the summary in our discussion. Um, the emotional stakes, it's super gut-wrenching. It's, it punches you right in the, in the heart and doesn't let go of you. And this is kind of another one of those moments. It's almost like Brand 2, where Martin says, Ah, you think this is one story, but it's actually uh, a bit different than what you're expecting. Um, in, in fact, George has talked a little bit about this, this chapter um, when this episode aired in 2011, uh, around May 2011, um, a lot of people were like, oh, this is horrifying. How could this ever happen? I'm going to stop watching the show. I will never read the books type of thing. Well, Martin, of course, decided to respond on his uh, former Not A Blog, which is also his new blog is called Not A Blog. So his old, new Not A Blog. Uh, but he says, said back then, he said, quote, it has come to my attention that a number of television viewers, mostly those who had not read my books and did not know what was coming, were shocked and upset by, by what befell Sansa's direwolf lady at the end of the second episode of HBO's Game of Thrones. Good. I mean, that was kind of the point. And it was kind of the point. It is, it is shocking and upsetting what happens to Lady. It's shocking and upsetting what happens to Micah as, as well in the scene. And... Yeah, I, I don't think that Martin necessarily writes to capture shock value necessarily, although he does in, utilize shock value to definitely bring up, bring across points, both in plot, narrative, and theme in the story. Um, but it, it, it does make itself good writing, or rather, it does make itself into good writing, and it helps to give us a sense that the stakes are real here, that the direwolves are not safe, the characters in the story are not safe. Although, in the so far as we see, Sansa and Arya have not had to lose their lives yet, have not lost their lives yet, but Ned certainly does at the end of A Game of Thrones. And I think Martin partially is communicating the point that, you know, a direwolf of cute, fluffy, furry animal can still suffer a horrible, terrifying, awful end. And a good boy and being the peasant that, that Micah is can still die in the story. And that's, that's the type of story that Martin is telling. You could take it or leave it. I mean, from what Martin was saying back in 2011, a lot of people decided to not go on with the, with the story. Um, I will, again, like we said, it's not just brutality for brutality's sake, or rather that's what Emmett said, not we. Um, but it's, it, it is also strong storytelling in my opinion that, the stakes are real and that the people that are engaging in the story are not necessarily going to be safe because they're quote unquote main characters. Ned Stark wasn't safe. 
Lady wasn't safe, Micah wasn't safe, and it's possible that we might find someday in the future that Sansa and Arya are not safe either. Yeah, I agree. It's, it, well, it's, it's violence with a purpose. It's, it's subverting your expectations to lead you somewhere more interesting. And um, uh, I liked the, uh, the Last Jedi just fine. The most, <laughs> uh, uh, not the most recent Star Wars movie now, because Solo exists for some reason. But um, I, I, I liked it. There was a lot, of, a lot of character moments I liked, a lot of visual things I liked. But something that was frustrating about both the movie and the reaction to it was just the endless, it's subverting your expectations, it's taking the things you thought would happen and twisting them around, and there's nothing inherently smart about that. Like, bad stories do that all the time. It's not good stories tell the thing, and then bad, like, it's not bad stories are straight laced and good stories deconstruct. That's not how it breaks down. Like, you know, when the reaction to the last Jedi was like, it's, it's taking all your expectations about where Star Wars was going to go, and turning them on its head. And I'm like, we already had that. It was called The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> and it was great. That's what that movie was about. Yes. Uh, but it did it intelligently, where it was constantly shouting your expectations in a way that brought you to more interesting places. Right. Not just kind of... And sometimes in The Last Jedi, I felt like it was just doing it just because. Just to show you that, ha-ha, you thought that. And for me, Martin is in the former category, where it's, it, it adds gravitas and, and yeah. real heft to the plot points. Um, and like we've been saying, it's really rooted in the characters and what they're experiencing. And that's what, that's what brings me back long after the initial shock of seeing Micah's body has, has faded. What, what, what brings me back is, is what that means in context and, and, and the dramatic weight it's given coming off of the Sansa and Ned chapters. Oh yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's what, that's why we're, that's the kind of stuff that has one do a crazy chapter by chapter podcast about it. Absolutely. If you're that type of person. If, if you're that type of person. Not that we are. We are. So from there, we're going to uh, start shifting into more foreshadowing and groundwork stuff uh, for, for both chapters. Uh, obviously, the major bit of foreshadowing in Sansa 1 is of Ned Stark's death. When Ilan Payne yes. shows up, uh, quote, The king has gone hunting, but I know he will be pleased to see you when he returns. The queen was saying to the two knights who knelt before her, but Sansa could not take her eyes off the third man, Ilan Payne. He seemed to feel the weight of her gaze. Slowly he turned his head. The lady growled. A terror as overwhelming as anything Sansa Stark had ever felt filled her suddenly. And there's no there's no rational justification for this, given in the text. There's no reason. Ilan Payne, like, he's not as pretty as Renly and Barristan, <laughs> but he's not visually terrifying. Right. Like, he's not Gregor. He's not an obvious villain. But there's just something. There's something here. And that, what that is, of course, is that you know, at the end of the book, she will watch this man cut her head off and completely shatter her innocence forever. And at the end of the next book, Cersei will threaten to have Ellen Payne do the same thing to her if Stannis wins at the battle. So this is Sansa sensing that this guy represents, again, death and the death of her ideals. And you see that built in. And it's I like I like this as as uh, as foreshadowing because like a lot of foreshadowing, it, it makes sense in the moment. The first time through is just kind of an emotional beat. Only when you come back and realize, like, oh, that's why she's terrified of Ellen Payne. Yeah. Because she's going to be involved with these horrible, bloody things down later in the line. Yeah, for sure. Like, that foreboding that Martin intentionally integrates into the character of Ellen Payne is intended to signal to the rereader, especially, that this guy is going to have something to do, something bad to do with House Stark coming down the road. Not just with House Stark, just there's there are bad, the bad overtones that Ellen evokes in Sansa have meaning and purpose in the narrative and that meaning and purpose in the narrative is to 
kill Ned Stark and almost kill Sansa Stark when Stannis almost wins the Battle of the Blackwater. Kind of on a, on a similar note about death, I guess. Uh, the death of Micah, as you guys probably are tracking, is becomes very pivotal in the Sandor Beric trial by combat in a storm of swords. So if you guys recall, Sandor Clegane is taken captive by the Brotherhood without banners. And they're trying to throw all these accusations at him. And they're like, he burned villages and he killed peasants and he did all these things. And Sandor's like, that's not me. That's Gregor. You're thinking of Gregor. I'm not my brother. I hate my brother. But then Arya is, happens to be there and she says she provides the only accurate accusation against Sandor Clegane. And she says, quote, I'm not a boy, but Micah was. He was a butcher's boy and you killed him. Jory said you cut him near in half and he never even had a sword. Unquote. And that comes from A Storm of Swords, Arya 6. So again, um, you do kind of wonder at this point whether Martin had this idea in mind of the death of Micah being a pivotal plot point that would come to play later on, or whether it was something that, as Martin is writing A Storm of Swords, he thinks, ah, well, how can I get Arya to... How can I get this great trial by battle between Sander and Beric, which is a terrific set piece in A Storm of Swords? And he says, ah, yes, of course, Arya would be angry about the death of Micah, her friend Micah, and Sander Clegane killed Micah, so I'm going to go and, and write it that way. And I think that's probably likely what what Martin was going for in here, but um, but I don't know, it's, it's always a question I'll have for Martin is what things were always in the works and what things just kind of came in as the process was going on in the books. Sure, like I've said uh, when we were doing Arya 1, that's probably my favorite Arya chapter in the whole series, is that one in Storm of Swords where Sandor was put on trial and then has a duel with Beric Dondarrion. It's super dramatic, and a lot of it's so dramatic because it's, yeah, it's rooted in this question of how nobles treat the small folk. That is, of course, what the Brotherhood is all about. Even though they're led by a knight, they are, you know, about defending the peasants from all sides, all armies. And, I mean, that fits with the themes in this chapter of Micah kind of being exposed and vulnerable because he's a peasant and just being kind of open to the assaults of the knights. So, who knows if Martin already had that specifically in mind, but it is he clearly had the themes in mind. And given that by the end of this book, Beric is already out fighting the Lannisters, you know, as a guerrilla fighter, you know, who, who knows how much Martin had the Brotherhood in mind, but uh, he's, he's definitely pursuing that same class angle there. And that fits with Arya's character as a whole, because she's always hanging out with the small folk. Yeah. Whether or not that's direct, direct foreshadowing, I think it is definitely a link worth, worth bringing up. Absolutely. So that kind of brings us to our theories and discussion portion of the uh, the podcast, uh, great segue. Thank you very much. What what feudal Westeros actually means to the people that it touches, and in West, in the case of Westeros, it touches just about everyone in the story. Um, you know, you have characters like Micah, you have characters like Ned, Arya, Joffrey, Sansa, and you have characters throughout the story who are interacting: small folk, nobles, knights, lords, kings, princes. And the feudal system essentially layers society of the king at the top and the small folk peasant at the bottom of the, of the rung with various degrees of respect and rights that are granted to each class of people in the story. Um, this kind of comes out in some interesting ways in these two chapters. In A Song of Ice and Fire, Martin is a romantic in that he is very much... He he loves the stories of that he grew up in the the you know the, the Canterbury Tales, 
King Arthur stories, things that he cited as being um, necessary for his understanding of, of the fantasy narrative that he's trying to integrate into A Song of Ice and Fire. But he's also critiquing some of these narrative points as well and critiquing the genre, as Emmett talked about at great length and excellent length, I should say, in the, in the Sansa chapter. But there, if we get a little bit more in depth, we actually see a lot of critique inherent in A Song of Ice and Fire of the feudal structure that Westeros is based around. And there's a couple of great points in the narrative where, in these two chapters, where we see this come in, and we get a bit more detail of the critique that Martin is making about um, the feudal structure of Westeros and feudal structures in general. Yeah, there's the uh, the, the great quote um, from Joffrey and Sansa's Ride Along the Rivers, quote, it was a day for adventures. They explored the caves by the riverbank and tracked a shadow cat to its lair. And when they grew hungry, Joffrey found a holdfast by its smoke and told them to fetch food and wine for their prince and his lady. And that's super romantic on the surface of it, right? That's that's just like the song Sansa would, would listen to. And they would, they would just go about and everything would just kind of present itself for you. And everything you need for the day just kind of appears in those songs Sansa loves. Uh, but... You know, once coming coming back to this and reading where Martin's kind of gone with that class angle, it does read a little differently. Yeah, it, but notice how like Joff just rolls up to the holdfast and orders them to prepare food for him and Sansa. In feudal Westeros, the small folk have to prepare food for Joffrey and Sansa. In a more just world, they tell the two nobles to either pay up or get fucked. Not so much here, unfortunately. And you know, you, you it, it this holdfast is probably fortunate in that it's nearby a river and they can fish fish all day. But you know. If, that isn't necessarily the case in a lot of these places where food is more scarce or where they're growing crops and they have to harvest crops. And, you know, you get that sense during the War of the Five Kings of the Lasters going in and just taking what they have and burning the rest that you're, you're they're essentially damning thousands, tens of thousands of people to their death by stealing their food and burning the, that which they couldn't, which wasn't nailed to the ground. And that's, that's definitely a part of what Martin is talking about in what's wrong with feudalism. And then, you know, you talk, we've talked about at some length about Joffrey and Micah. And when Joffrey orders Micah to fight him, Micah freezes, refuses to hold up a stick to the prince and stands meekly while Joffrey cuts his face. And it's almost a redux of that Arya's first chapter where bastards are not allowed to damage young princes. And, you know, Joffrey is a monster and he's evil and he's wrong and he's doing wrong things. But because Micah is a small folk, because he's a peasant, he has to stand there and let a monster abuse him and can't do anything against the monster or fear great and horrible, horrifying reprisals, which he ends up getting anyways. That's true. It's not even it's not even fair by its own brutal rules. Like, it's not even like Micah gets disproportionately punished for something he did. He gets horribly punished for something he didn't even do. Right. Um, it's, it's not even hard, but fair. It's, it's, it's just people who don't work for a living, hired a bunch of swords and stole the land. I mean, that's, that's just what the source of the, the feudal power system is. Um, and Martin, you know, I think does, does a good job, if not a perfect job of really of exposing that and getting at the core of it. That, yeah, the, it's talked about a couple times in the series that one strategy a king can use with like restive or bannermen who don't like him is just kind of passively starve them. Yes. Like you go to their castle and just stay there and make them lavishly feed you. And then they don't have the resources to go start rebellions. Yes. Um, that's obviously different from, you know, attacking and killing peasants at will. But it does again show that 
the source of this, these politics, the source of the power in this system is that you have to do what this guy says and that he's, he's given this kind of, there's a, a sacredness that's kind of imposed upon him. Um, and that, you know, he is the land and he is chosen by God and you have to, you have to bend the knee and deal with that. And I think Martin does a great job at showing how much casual violence and, like I said, again, irresponsible authority there is in that. Martin's talked before about something that always really annoyed him about a lot of fantasy stories was that you get, like, the spunky young girl who lives in the town and she goes up to the prince and wags her finger and tells him, you know, it's like the emperor has no no clothes thing. Like, she, he tells the, she tells the prince that which his courtiers won't tell him and he laughs and falls in love with her because she told him the truth and he said, like, you know, in, in, in reality, that, that girl is getting horribly attacked or at least shoved aside for daring to talk to the prince like that. Right. And so if you if you want to set fantasy in this era, you have to be honest about the power structure. And, you know, I don't think Martin does a perfect job at medieval realism. No, I think he, no, no. This is something we can go into. I think he goes overboard on sexual violence and, and child marriages in a way that I think sometimes is, is just too much. Yes. But I think something he gets across really well in these in these chapters, especially the Sansa chapter, is uh, fan the fantasy genre as as uncritical as a kind of in universe propaganda uh, that that papers over these inequities and this violence and this kind of chaos uh, and assures people that the rules work when in fact they don't exactly um, and this is something I think that you know Martin steadily embellishes on the silly you know. He builds on this argument throughout the series, but I think you really see it here. He's doing starting here. Yeah, and the the other thing that makes it even more horrifying is even Micah, you know, in this this chapter, he gets, you know, he gets his cheek stabbed by by Joffrey, but then at the end of Eddard's chapter, he's killed and his body is dumped, and there's no repercussions by the power structures in Westeros. The kid is the, is murdered by Sandra Clegane and doesn't and Sandra Clegane can walk around like nothing happened it, because right. that is what Westeros that's what a feudal society is it allows for the abuse by the powerful against the against the powerless that a boy like Micah can be cut nearly in half by Sandra Clegane and Sandra Clegane can walk around like a free man and you know eventually become a Kingsguard in Joffrey's Kingsguard Essentially, you know, there's there's questions about whether Joffrey's or whether that Micah's killing was ordered by the Lannisters, perhaps as a way to cover up the what actually happened at the events, because they can't kill Arya because that's the Hand's daughter. But again, that gets back to the whole point that there are two different sets of standards there, and there are two different sets of consequences. Arya is brought before the audience chamber and is, you know lies are told about her and she's made to feel powerless and she's made to suffer injustice and watch injustice being performed writ large in uh, by the king and by the king's courtiers that's awful that's horrible but Arya is not being cut in half by Sandra Clegane because she doesn't have a societal status that allows abuse to be inflicted upon a certain class of people because they were born a certain class of people because they don't have the wealth or the birth in order to avoid the avoid those types of consequences. Micah's not in that class. Micah has to suffer eventual death because he is a peasant and he can suffer death. And it's also why, you know, you have a 
the the chevauche is what they the, the term is basically means to burn out the land that happens in the war of the five kings and you have the war criminals of the lannisters that are you know it's 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 horrifying and they're they try to bring battle to these folks or rob stark does and the brother of the banners definitely tries to and they definitely the brother of the banners does bring a bit of justice to some of the war criminals on the on the lannister and stark side for that matter but the nobility and the societal structure of Westeros doesn't allow that to happen. The Brotherhood of Bands are essentially working against this the society that they live in, and that's makes them different and good until they're corrupted later on by by vengeance and by Lady by Lady Stoneheart. Yeah, and even and even the Brotherhood at their best, they still say they're Robert's men, right? Which is convenient because a, a dead king can't disappoint you, and he can't tell you to kill children. He can't give you any orders you don't want to follow. It's very convenient to have the king you're ostensibly fighting for be dead. And I think that's, I mean, the Brotherhood, I think, are morally, ethically leagues beyond the people they're fighting. But I think even they still have that kind of mindset uh, where they, they have to be fighting for some king. Right. Otherwise, what are what are we doing? What are we doing here, guys? What's, what's the system we're in? Um, and, you know, this is, of course, not to suggest that we've solved all these problems in our enlightened <laughs> no, modern age. Yeah. There are still powerful people who can kill people and get away with it uh, behind, you know, behind the, the image of legality. Uh, you, you still have uh, layers of wealth and power that insulate people. You still have the classic thing where, you know, it's, as the saying goes, it's, it's cheap to be rich and expensive to be poor. Yes. Uh, so you, you still, you still have tons, tons, tons of these issues. So the, the point is that Martin is like, you know, showing us how, how how far we've come or how, how alien the past is, but like to show you how disconnected it is from the popular image of it and to try to, to try to plumb that gap Correct. and to show you how it works. And that's something this dynamic gets recreated in an obviously much more much less lethal way at the wall in a few chapters, where John has to get told that he's behaving like Joffrey. Yes. That you know, he's he's being a bully and you got raised with steel and these kids were raised with sticks and you have to be aware of that. Of course, John listens and learns. Joffrey, for a variety of reasons, never will. Absolutely, you're right about that. And then continuing on, kind of in this in the same vein, you know, you have Ned having to obey King Robert's unjust decree and killing Lady for a crime she didn't commit. So the feudal system forces a good man to do immoral deeds if someone of a higher station orders it to happen. And then, kind of in the same vein, Sir Barristan Selmy looks miserable and uncomfortable when he's replying to Cersei and looks like he wants to be any other place than he is right now, but he stands aside and meekly acquiesces to the commands that are given by the queen, by the king, by others around him, because that's his place. His place as a king's guard is to obey. As Ariohota says, serve, protect, obey. That's the place of Sir Barrison. It is not to challenge unjust orders in Barrison's mind. It is to simply be obedient and to be the, the essentially to live in a system that he's in a, a station above a lot of the people of Westeros but he still has to answer to someone and he has to obey unquestioningly the orders of that someone regardless of whether they're lawful legal or ethical yeah I mean it's it's something that the characters in the series keep running up against is is when their instinct to do the right thing isn't being validated or even made possible by the system around them I mean, you see it with, with Stannis, who uh, in some respects believes in the feudal system more than any other, given that his, he's fighting for primogeniture yep. and, and the, you know, passing down the inheritance. But on the other hand, as Davos points out, he rebelled against Eris, 
So there clearly comes a line in which you have to have to you have to punch up and you have to break down these oppressive systems of power to whatever extent you you are politically capable of it or you you know obviously they didn't when the Roberts rebellion happened they didn't end the monarchy but they they were politically conscious enough to know that Eris was over the line um and then yeah then you have Stannis left with he he believes in the feudal system on the one hand but he knows the nobility are a bunch of venal assholes on the other <laughs> and that men like Davos are better for for Westeros I think what what makes this probably makes the series work really well is it's not just hitting you over the head with the system is broken. It's it says okay the system is broken. Okay, so what now? Yeah. How do you live? How do you live with yourself? How do you deal with the dreams you once had? Or is any of them worthwhile? Can you make them happen on your own? Should you just give them up? What do you do? It's it's you, you, it's about learning learning these new rules of of, of the titular game, um, and I think that that elevates. That elevates the content of these chapters, which, if you just break them down, is very, very miserable. I think yeah. that, that it gives it a little more of a, a little more of a political, philosophical edge to it. Yeah, that's good. I mean, that's a lot of why why I think I, I find my enjoyment in a song of ice and fire is that it doesn't just be like, oh man, shit's bad, you're up, bro, and shit's just bad. You know, it actually goes into depth about why things are bad why is westeros such a mess why are why is a place like marine such a mess and a lot of times it's it's based in the structure and the, the societal structure that's in place for these these locations and it, it has an impact on the characters it, it causes the death of innocents like lady like micah it forces good men i guess i could say barrison is kind of a good man to follow the follow the orders of of bad leaders, it also causes good men like Ned to have to do unthinkably bad, unjust maybe not unjust on his part, but follow bad kings and do the decrees of bad kings as well. And you know, I I think it's 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 so important to take a look at the depth that Martin is integrating into the structure, the political structure, the societal structure that he has here. And, you know, feudalism is going to be a constant and a consistent ideal that Martin is going to be grappling with, attacking it at some points, looking at it objectively at others, seeing that there's some good things too about it as well. Not many, but maybe one or two, if I think about it really hard. But yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a fantastic world and um it's it's a it's a dark world in some ways but it does have a uh it causes it, it causes us to think about the the structures of of that world some of its implications in our own world as, as emma was talking about and i guess you know if i find it to be a satisfying uh place to build a story around for sure yeah it definitely applies to the modern age i mean coming back to sandor killing mike i can't help but thinking about you know uh, policemen who, who kill children for reasons that later revealed to be, you know, completely fabricated or overblown, like that kid Tamir Rice in Cleveland who got shot for holding around a, a plastic gun. Yep. And, you know, the the reason that that, that ha- carries fewer legal consequences than killing, say, Trump's grandson right. would, would, would be, you know, that's that's still a, a political system, political structure we, we live in and have to reckon with. And I think, uh, like I said, Song of Ice and Fire does a good job of showing people wrestle with it not just showing you the badness but showing people wrestle with it how it, sh- it makes good people do bad things it lets weak people do easy things and it lets horrible people do whatever they want yes yes there's a world of great 
of Gregor Clegane, Ned Stark, Robert Baratheon, Joffrey, Sansa, Arya, and all the people that can do good and evil, but a lot of times, a lot of times, evil stuff. Well said, sir. <laughs> I think that I think we couldn't wrap it up better than that. There you go. Yeah. Well, thank you guys very much for listening, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I know it's a bit longer than our usual fare, but I uh, I think it's enjoyable. I think it's good listening. And I, and I really uh, appreciate everyone for sticking around. And again, thank you very much for your patience as you waited for us for a few weeks before we come before we came back. And, man, we're, I'm happy to be back for sure. Happy to have you, sir. Yeah, you let us know how you think we did as always, guys. You can rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play. You can find the podcast themselves on Podbean, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Uh, you can follow us on social media, at uh, Notacast, A-S-O-I-I-F on Twitter. Uh, our email, email is notacastasoiaf at gmail.com uh, personally I'm at Quentin on Twitter and you can find me also at porkquentin.tumblr.com and I'm Brendan Beefish on Twitter and you can find me on Reddit as Brendan Beefish too you can also find my website at warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com bit of a mouthful but that's okay but um, if you guys are interested, uh, one of the things we do have is a Patreon where we do things like show notes, like questions. So the questions that you heard before, if you contribute to us $10 or more a month, you get to the ability to ask us a question. You also have other rewards, early episodes, show notes, and you also have special episodes. And if you guys were listening a few weeks ago, we announced our next special episode is entitled... What is taking the Winds of Winter so goddamn long to come out? And if you guys subscribe for at our Poor Fellows level at $5 or more a month, you will get the chance to listen to that episode, which is coming out in two days on Thursday. Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. On the uh, 31st of May, you'll be getting our next special episode about a really niche not really popular topic that no one really cares about about why is the winds of winter taking so long to come out and you know we might even get our predictions about when that specific book that no one's really interested in is coming out of course from both Emmett and I like Jeff says we know that the topic of when winds of winter is coming is something that's barely touched on in fandom circles <laughs> but we hope you enjoy it again that's uh, patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOIF and you can join us next week. Uh, we get into one of my very favorite chapters in this book and the whole series, Brand 3, with his trippy fever dream accompanied by Blood Raven. And we're very excited to have as a guest on that episode, uh, uh, Lucifer means Lightbringer, mm-hmm. uh, the Dragon LML on Twitter. Uh, you may have seen his videos covering the mythical astronomy of A Song of Ice and Fire, where he digs deep into, into symbolism how it relates to the magical history of A Song of Ice and Fire, comets and dragons and others and all that good stuff. Uh, he does a really brilliant job of it. There's tons of stuff he's found that I, I never would have thought to consider a link together. So we thought he would be the perfect guest to have yes. on for, for Brand 3, given what a symbolism-heavy uh, chapter that is. Yes. Cannot wait. Next week is going to be, as the kids say, hashtag lit. There's also going to be a lot of that on this episode, so look, look, look forward to a bunch of dudes being awkward about kid, about youth culture and their memes and their drugs. Absolutely, but don't do drugs because drugs are bad. <laughs> we'll get into that, folks. I assure you. <laughs> um, but uh, hope you enjoy that. We'll see you next week, and thanks for listening as always. See you.
Not a Cast podcast is written and recorded by Port Quentin and Brennan B. Fish. The music you heard is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit, and the closing song is called Alaska Bye. Sorry we didn't get to thank yous this week. We'll try to do it next week. We appreciate all your guys' support and patronage, and we will see you guys next time.